Thank you so much for being willing to sit down, Lee. I stumbled upon your work in a research article that I saw, and I didn't feel like I learned enough from it. So I felt it was important that we have a conversation because you were the one who did the background research on uh, wolf culling and what's taking place. Would you mind just giving listeners a brief introduction of yourself? Myself? Well, I was born and raised in California. Uh, what Degree in wildlife management, Humboldt State University, 1970. Immigrated to Canada right soon thereafter. Uh, my first job, not really a real job, but really for fun, was guiding for big game up in northern BC along the Alaska Highway. So I guided for moose, caribou, uh, mountain goats, mountain sheep. And you're a biologist. I'm a biologist, yes, a wildlife biologist. And how did you get started in that? Oh, well, I could make it long or short, but the the, the medium form is in, in, in high school, uh, sophomore in high school, 10th grade, my uh, biology teacher came to me. He, he was also my coach, my track coach. I was on the track team, also the football team. And he said, Lee, if you don't get your grades up in biology, you're off the teams. So, uh, he had assigned a project to pick a, a wild animal and do a presentation on it. So I picked beavers. I really got into beavers, and there were beavers. We lived on the sort of edge of town there, and I was in the habit of walking them down the creeks, you know, hunting, fishing, just fooling around in the woods. There were beavers there, so I, I, I got an A plus, first A plus he'd ever given, and I stayed on the team. That's what got me started in wildlife studies. Oh my gosh! Okay, well let's get started right away into uh, the wolf cullings. So when I read the article, I thought it was hyperbolous when I first saw it. I, I couldn't have imagined um, that we in British Columbia uh, send out helicopters and planes to gun down wolves um, at, at mass. Uh, it was like, I think, 1,600 over five years. Um, can you tell us um, what's going on? How did this get started? How did you start learning about this? Well, I mentioned I guided for big game. So there were wolves, moose, caribou up there. Our hunters liked to shoot a wolf if they ran across it. We didn't target them specifically. And also one time a wolf came into the into the ranch where I stayed. I was in the bunkhouse and the rancher was out away somewhere. And his wife came running to me and was like panic stricken. There's a wolf. <laughs> the wolf was like 200 yards out, you know, sort of coming towards the chicken coop, but Anyway, she wanted me to shoot it, so I levered a 220-grain bullet into my into my rifle and aimed carefully high and to the right and missed it, and she thought I was a bad shot, and then the wolf ran off. Anyway, uh, not long after that, well, it was a while after that. It was That was 1970. In the mid-'80s, uh, there was a lot of controversy about shooting wolves from helicopters or, or otherwise. Um, I wrote a couple of articles about it, drawing on my experience as a hunting guide, and also a biologist. I sort of presented a sort of a biologist look at why you should hunt wolves or not hunt wolves, and uh, some some thing about how to do it, and when and where. At the same time, there was this uh, really good biologist from uh, he'd been studying Newfoundland caribou, and he came out. He moved out to BC to study our caribou which were declining. It had declined quite a bit from when I first guided for them, which must have been at the peak of their population, and they've been going down ever since. 
I think they had been going up until then. Of course, nobody knows because there were no surveys. But anyway, uh, by 85, even the, the province was concerned about the declining population of caribou. And this, this guy came out, this good biologist, and he did a good, careful study, lots of field data. I read the papers. Uh, and he said that there, there were so many wolves that they were not really hunting caribou per se, but they would like spill over into caribou country and, and snag a few, usually young ones. So uh, recruitment was down. That's recruitment is the new ones added to the population the year after they're born. So like the following year, if a calf survives his first year, he becomes a member of the herd. That's recruitment. Recruitment was way down, not so much adult caribou. So wolves were clearly targeting calves and yearlings. Uh, and But the wolf population was high. Uh, it was thought, and this guy said, uh, because the moose and elk populations were high. Deer, I suppose, but up in that north country, there weren't many deer. And that's where he did the study. It was up in the north uh, Williston Lake area. Uh, so the wolf population was high, and the mo they were mainly hunting moose and, and elk. But there were enough of them that they would chance to stumble on enough caribou to, you know, reduce the the recruitment of caribou, and thence the population was in a downward tra trajectory. Right. It's a good study. So the province decided to, uh, even before those studies were published, you know, with sort of the raw data, the... Uh, decided to start hunting wolves from helicopters. And it was controversial. I, I wrote a couple of articles about it, one in the BC Outdoors magazine, and another one, you know, full page in the Vancouver Sun newspaper, just sort of giving the biologists a look at it. Uh, anyway, that's when I first got really involved in the issue. I hadn't studied wolves professionally up to then, or caribou. Yeah. So this was uh, Tom Bertrude, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right? Bertrude, yes. Okay, and he basically said that uh, this is um, incidental, that the wolves were not seeking out hunting caribou, um, that it was just kind of they'd land upon some and then take out what sounds like the younger ones. And so the argument, it sounds like, the government is making um, in the articles that I've seen in CTV, CBC, in various places, is that the, the reason that we're hunting um, wolves by plane or by helicopter is to bring down uh, the effects on the caribou. Uh, we're trying to save the caribou in BC, and killing the wolves is going to um, help us accomplish that goal. Uh, what are your thoughts on that as a biologist who's, who's looked into the matter? Well, the initial studies were, were good, competent, careful, uh, well-researched, published in top journals. And there were several papers that came out of this work. Um, the problem is, as I see it, first of all, it became a like a paradigm for all the young biologists, caribou biologists that were that were coming up, coming out of university, and they also taught this, this idea in the universities. Uh, uh, I don't think they took into account the the uh, hundred year scale uh, trajectory of wolf populations. Uh, be that as it may, wolves were high and, and probably increasing along with the increasing populations of, of deer, elk, and moose. So that became the paradigm. But the problem is that the, the, the government and its, and its consultants, uh, consultants work for the government or the consultants work for uh, logging companies, basically, in most of our area, some oil and gas companies up north. Um, 
they applied that idea like to the the whole province, like the whole of Mountain Caribou range. And Mountain Caribou, I'm only talking about the Mountain Caribou of British Columbia and Yukon, not other kinds of caribou that live in the Arctic or in the boreal forest. Anyway, that became the paradigm, but they applied it even even in uh, in the Selkirk Mountains, where, where I built a cabin in 1971. It was sort of my dream come true to move to Canada and you know, build a cabin in the wilderness. Uh, so I spent a lot of time there, you know, back and forth, and that was sort of a home base, place to leave my backpack, and, you know, when I was canoeing, and my canoe when I was backpacking. And I was working all over the Arctic, you know, so I had to have a home base. But so I, you know, I saw caribou, and they, they came down every year in wintertime, and then, then again in spring, you'd see them down along the highways. And there were lots of caribou up in those mountains. The loggers ate them all the time because the logger would fell a bunch of trees and the, the treetops would be lying on the landing, you know, the log deck, you know, the woodland landing where they pile the trees. And then the caribou would come out to eat the arboreal lichens off off the trees, lichens. That's what they live on is arboreal lichens, the kind of lichen, the hair lichen, you know, that grows in right. in trees. So there were lots of caribou then, but then, then they were declining. I thought they were declining. I had an article in, I think, 75 or 76 in BC Outdoors about, you know, asking whether caribou were really endangered, should be listed and such, and explaining why. And that got into this whole idea that the, the habitat for moose, deer, and elk is like open and semi-open with some patches of nice mature forest, but a mosaic of open areas, natural meadows, farmland, logged over areas, and burned over areas. And it's been known since the 50s that um, that uh, fires and for forest uh, logging, uh, which also destroys forests, are bad for caribou because caribou really need this mature old growth forest. And they need it in two places, in the low elevation uh, where they come down in, in wintertime. Here I'm only talking about this so-called southern mountain caribou, the Selkirk, Columbia Mountains, Purcell Mountains. That's what they call the deep snow caribou because snow builds up so deep. Uh, first of all, in the fall, they can't walk on it. It's just too much snow and too deep. So they, they come down to low elevation in the fall. But then in the high country, it's sort of a warm environment. It's, you know, it's below freezing. It's cold and it snows. But it's warm enough that the snow settles and packs enough so the caribou can walk on top of the snowpack. And the snow might be 10 feet deep. So the caribou... At that time of year, which is midwinter, then they go back up to the high country in the subalpine meadows and, and uh, patches of forest, uh, uh, Engelman spruce and subalpine fir country. <coughs> and then they browse on these arboreal lichens walking on top of the snowpack. They're basically feeding in the treetops. In late winter, uh, it starts freezing and thawing, and the snow forms a crust. And the caribou can't walk on that crust. They just they break through. And it abrades their skin. I've actually followed blood trails where caribou are like trying to get out of that high country and get down to the low elevation, but they're walking, they're breaking, you know, breaking through the crust so much, it's white, rubbing the skin off their legs. It's hard, hard for them if they can't. But then, so then they come down to the cedar hemlock forest, the low elevation, wet, moist forest, the warm forest. And uh, in the spring, and that's when you know it's starting to green up. The snow is already gone, especially along the sides of the roads and the, you know the avalanche paths. 
So that's where you would look for them. You'd see them on the road all the time in the 70s. They're common. Excuse me. In that area, there are no more caribou. They're gone. They've been chased out by, uh, well, there were never any wolves there until about 1990, say. Not sure exactly, but I was, my friend who hunted up in the, one of those valleys saw the, the first one anybody had ever heard of. And a year or two later, uh, a neighbor joined on the cabin in Galena Bay, which is on the base of the Selkirk Mountains. He saw one on the beach, and people started reporting wolf tracks. Wolves only came in at that time. Before that, there were never any wolves in that country. And there were, and I saw that actually the first band of elk that came in that country. They came through a pass from the, the, the Kootenai drainage in there. And because there were lots of logged land by then, they were really logging to beat the band back in the 70s and early 80s, and they still are. <clears throat> and then the moose came a few years later. So with the moose and the elk, and there never had been any moose there at all. In, you know, on the Arrow Lake side of the Selkirk Valley, they had been, you know, milk and moose on the other side, over in the Kootenai, but never there. And so that's, you know, the elk came, then the moose came, and then the wolves came. Uh, so that was only up until the, you know, the late 90s. And until then, there was never any predation by wolves on caribou, but the caribou populations were declining. Why? Well, the logging destroys their low elevation habitat. At that time, there were still lots of higher elevation habitat still there. There still is a fair bit since the, you know, the, the, the various caribou protection plans uh, protected some of the higher elevation, but not low elevation. So they come down to the low elevation, there's, there's no forest. They need the forest not so much to feed at that time of year when they come down to low elevation, uh, fall and spring, but more, uh, they need the forest to escape the predators, which in that country was mostly uh, cougars. Right. Cougars were taking a fair number. Not a huge number, but some. And it turns out that, interesting paper, uh, one cougar can learn to hunt caribou, and then that cougar will be responsible for like, lowering the population in the whole area. Wow. You know, and then it trains its, its babies to hunt caribou also. And you know, other other cougars, you know, living 10 miles away or whatever, they they just hunt deer and elk like all the other cougars were doing. But anyway, that's, that's sorry, that's a sideline. But that's that's the background. So and then caribou populations were declining and been declining ever since. Okay, so from your understanding and your research, it looks like this is primarily due to uh, the deforestation and impacting with logging. Um, you've also mentioned uh, like ski areas and ski trails and um, and stuff like that as being one of the primary impacts. Um, then why are we killing these wolves in this way? Well, see, <clears throat> as I said, the, the caribou biologists growing up and coming out of university who are now you know, between your and my ages, they're like the mature senior biologists, whether they're working for industry or for government. They came up with this idea and they can't shake the idea that wolves are responsible. And wolves are responsible for bringing down the recruitment in some areas, but, but not, not, not all areas. And, and that's only part of the story anyway, because 
well, going back about 20 years now, when the, fir- the first paper started coming out about the impacts of snowmobiling and heli skiing on caribou, it harasses them. So they, they run around, they burn up energy in, in wintertime when they can ill afford it, especially the females who are carrying fetuses. And it also chases them away from their preferred habitats, which is these high elevation in midwinter when the you know when the snowmobiles and skiers or heli skiers are out. They're up there in these little patches of subalpine fir and spruce, eating arboreal lichens. Well, the snowmobiles just chase them away, even if they don't mean to, because just you know snowmobile coming up the valley. But in fact, I've seen. Uh, Areas in prime caribou winter habitat where there's not a meter of snow unimpacted by snowmobile tracks. They're just so pervasive. And it's a huge industry. And, you know, people love snowmobiling. I do too. I used to, well, I never did it for recreation, but I did use it for, uh, you know, wildlife surveys and related things. And it's fun to get out and, you know, race around the snow and, you know, no roads and go, go wherever you want. But you know, so that's the first thing. It impacts the, the caribou directly, but also indirectly, because it turns out that wolves more easily and more willingly will follow a snowmobile track up into the high country where the caribou are trying to hide. Right. And then the, uh, you know, when the caribou, when the snowmobile track freezes, it gets hard like rock. So it's easy to walk on, easy for wolves. Not for caribou because caribou break through. So you have this duality where uh, the, the winter habitat uh, is being destroyed by logging, but at the same time, and both high elevation and and low, there's almost no ele- uh, no low elevation forest left in that area. Well, in any area, because the, the loggers harvest the more easily accessible low elevation forest first. And that's common throughout Cameroon, mountain caribou range. So you've got the impact of increasing elk and moose and deer populations, increasing the wolf population, and then uh, the caribou not having any place to hide from the, the wolves, either at low elevation or high elevation, and the wolves more easily traveling up to the high elevation. You know, maybe they just go explore and they see, well, where's this track go? Let's go find out. And they get up there and they find some caribou. Yeah. So that that's has been the story, and that study that you mentioned. Well, let me just explain the study. Uh, it has been this paradigm that the way to save caribou is to kill wolves you know, for a long time. So, well, that's you know since '85 anyway. Uh, but it hadn't really been. There had been you know little. One good series of studies up in the Peace River country, and then little bits of studies that sort of let the biologists infer that that was the case there also, but not really any concerted study. So a colleague of mine, good biologist, I know him personally, he thought he'd draw together all the studies from all these different areas, and by you know by by the late teens, you know, 2019, his paper came out, so his research was up to about the previous year, 2000. 18. Um, he looked at all the different caribou populations all over with the idea of showing whether or not killing wolves uh, could save caribou. And his data showed that where they 
had removed wolves, the caribou population at least stabilized and in some cases started to go back up. But when I read it, I realized he'd made some major errors. And uh, so, so, so many that as I read it and read it, and I, you know, I, I got his data tables and I constructed my own data tables from his and found some errors in the data. Let's not go there. Not, wouldn't have been fatal to the paper. But I realized that uh, where the caribou populations were going down was in this, uh, uh, really dramatically, it was in this deep snow country. Uh, the government had tried to have a, a maternal pen. Uh, shall I explain that? You know, yes, please. Trying? Well, if they're trying to protect, you know, increase recruitment, then they need to protect the calves and the yearlings. And one way to do that is to capture all the females who are about to give birth, put them in a pen, and let them give their uh, give birth to their calves in this protected area with no wolves. Let the calves grow to you know a certain age where they probably fend for themselves or at least outrun a wolf, and then um, take them back up on the high country and turn them loose. Right. So there was a maternal pen. Uh, some good work by the Soto and other First Nations up there working with the government and with the companies that were. They wanted to log, and so they were hiring biologists. So uh, they were taking charge of their, you know, their, their country, and they wanted to protect their animals. So they came up with this protection plan. This is in the Clinton uh, Zaw territory, but uh, by uh, I think it's between Chetwind and uh, Port St. John, those mountains. Right. Or maybe it's a little south and west of Chetwind. Nice country. Uh, and they did good work. They made a paternal pen. It was up in high elevation. They, they caught the pregnant females, all the ones they could find. They had like two subpopulations. One of them was, had gone almost to extinction by the time they did this. So they sort of, on paper, they merged those two populations. But <clears throat> they they got the thing. They, you know, they, they they got the pregnant cows. They raised the calves, turned them loose. And at the same time, they're uh, culling wolves. So uh, fewer wolves, more more recruitment, caribou population started going up. It was good work. It was well done. Uh, and sometime after that was well going and the initial results were good, they built another maternal pen down in the southern deep snow country. Let me just uh, clarify this deep snow. In the north, uh, that is around the Clinsey's territory, that, that's a I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, by the way, but anyway. Uh, the snow is really light. It's colder up there in winter. It's like a continental climate. It's dry and cold relative to the southwest of, uh, southeast of BC. And so the snow is light and fluffy and not very deep. There's not that much snow. There's not that much total precipitation, but the snow is light and fluffy. <clears throat> and the caribou there, they never uh, browse arboreal lichens in the trees. They dig through the snow and they eat terrestrial lichens, like all of the other caribou in the world, practically. They, they possibly there's no for terrestrial lichens, and a lot of them will stay in high-elevation country where the wind blows the snow off the mountaintops, and they can browse arboreal lichens up there. And some of them, go, where I was guiding, for example, that's uh, the Pink Mountain area, those caribou would, would come off like en masse in the fall, late fall, and they go out into the muskeg and browse terrestrial lichens out there. 
And so every year you had this mass migration across the Alaska Highway. It was really easy to shoot a caribou. You just the hunters would go up. In the, this is early seventies. I'm talking about. The hunters would go up, just line up along the Alaska Highway, and wait for the caribou to come across. Wow! Well, I was one of them. <clears throat> and yeah, it was really it was migration that was amazing. Um, it wasn't tens of thousands. It was, you know, dozens. So, uh, but still, over the you know it was uh, over the course of a winter, it would be many thousands of caribou that would come across through the hike, and nobody was doing winter surveys, so they didn't know if if those northern caribou were were, uh, <clears throat> were if some of them were still in the high country or not. They assumed that they all came out and migrated fairly long horizontal distance. So this is not the same kind of the migration I described. This double migration where they, in the, in the Selkirk Mountains, where they come down twice a year, they come down in the fall and they come down again in the spring. You know, this is different. It's a horizontal migration, and they're eating, and they're totally different caribou. In fact, let me digress a moment. Uh, since about 2000, when caribou classification was sort of revised, actually there was a major revision in, in '61. I won't trouble you with that, but in 2000 they the government, the Canadian government, classified caribou all over Canada, really according to the ecosystems where they lived. The ecosystems were defi- defined on a broad scale. So the southern mountain ecozone was from basically Fort St. John all the way down through the Cordillera, or, you know, the mountains of British Columbia. And then the northern mountain ecozone was all from there all, all the way up through the Yukon. So those caribou were classified that, and and one of the caribou, the southern, well, the southern mountain ecotype, as they called it, was classified as threatened. Uh, it turns out that that was an error in that classification. It didn't take into account the the genetic relatedness of the caribou, the ecosystem, the habitat, the behavior. Or anything. It was just based on these large, very large scale ecozones that had been defined for some other reason. Well, since then, there's been a lot of research, including genetic research, to show relatedness among caribou population. And these papers started coming out in the early you know, 2000s, mid 2000s. And they showed that uh, the, uh, the caribou, these mountain caribou, uh, weren't in fact related to the woodland caribou that live in Canada all across you know the prairies and the, and the maritimes. They were uh, somewhat distantly, but still more closely related to those caribou, to the Arctic caribou, the tundra caribou, uh, the the ones that survived the last and maybe the previous ice age in you know in Beringia in the Alaska Yukon area, wow. and so they're unrelated to the caribou. That live south of the ice sheets all across the rest of North America. So these mountain caribou were really not related, but according to this 2000 era classification, uh, they were just all, there were two kinds of caribou, northern mountain and southern mountain. But this more modern research with genetic, behavioral, and ecological showed that there were three kinds of mountain caribou northern mountain. a southern mountain, which were both of these Beringian lineage, with 
Beringia is the area of Alaska, Yukon, and what, eastern Siberia that was ice-free during the last ice age. Beringia, so the Beringian lineage. And then there was another uh, population of caribou that, that, that the geneticists uh, defined as central mountain caribou. They turned out to be a kind of a hybrid between uh, our other mountain caribou and woodland caribou. They're on the other side of the mountains, the eastern slope of the Rockies. Interestingly, uh, these three types of caribou were all identified in the uh, you know, 1899-1900-1902 as separate species and not merely subspecies or ecotypes, but actually separate species. So the mountain caribou in the, in the mountain caribou was the southernmost in the Selkirk Mountains. Uh, it was Rangifer Montanus mountain caribou. The central mountain was Rocky Mountain caribou. It was a different species, and, and they were remained as different species for most of a century. Uh, but this was not recognized by this 2000-era geographically. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm rambling a bit, but it's, I think it's an important point. Yeah. Uh, it was not recognized by this 2000-era classification that was just ge- geography-based instead of you know, lineage-based or uh, ecological or behavioral or anything. And so this has been known since the mid-2000s. In 2011, the Canadian Wildlife Service did a review of all the, the classification of, of caribou and the genetic data, the behavioral data, ecological data, relatedness among lineages based mainly on the genetics and they defined these three that maybe not coincidentally uh, these three mountain ecotypes then went back to the original descriptions except that they weren't revised formally in a taxonomic basis so they weren't given their old species names they were just called ecotypes still officially, even today, classified as subspecies of woodland caribou, uh, which they're not even related to, or at least not not for the last 100,000 years. Right. So basically, like, what you're pointing out is that, uh, like, putting out, like, one research study is not conclusive, and there's dangers in taking one and just assuming that this is what the new reality is, and we can just take this um, wholeheartedly and move forward based on it. You've kind of pointed out with certain research that there's nuance to it and that if people aren't careful, if they make assumptions or if they um, breeze over certain data, that we can make a lot of big errors. And uh, it's very concerning. And it sounds like you've been able to see just smaller errors that are important, that are relevant to our understanding of what's going on. Yeah, you've actually said it more distinctly than I did. So that's right. So this nineteen, this 2019 study, they ignored these different kinds of caribou or their different kinds of habitats, behavior, ways of living, arboreal versus terrestrial lichens, just lumped them all together. And also lumped areas with different kinds of, uh, uh, different mixes of predators, as I mentioned earlier. And, 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 uh, and they actually ignored more than half the populations of of mountain caribou that they could have included in their analysis. And it turns out the ones they ignored were the ones that didn't fit their their uh, their hypothesis that the way to kill wolves is to, or the way to save caribou is to kill wolves, because there were a lot of populations where they had removed wolves 
but the caribou population still went down. And they had included one or two populations like that, but uh, they had ignored these other caribou. So there was a fundamental flaw. There were under other fundamental, really, I think, fundamental flaws. The study purported to show that the amount of a good caribou habitat, which they equated to, you know, forest versus non-forest, was not a factor. But they used you know, invalid um, metrics, invalid data for for what was caribou habitat, Un- unaccountably because data were actually available. Uh, they ignored what we call in science and in, in statistical analysis confounding variables. That's a variable that might influence the results that, that that you should account for in your study design. So they ignored the impact of snowmobiles, which from 2000, when the papers first started coming out until now, it's just gone up exponentially. Uh, literally, if you look at the data, there's, there is an exponential increase in, in snowmobile use. And of course, the local chambers of commerce love it, you know, and tour guides love it, and it's good for business. Uh, so good, in fact, that the provincial government just refuses to even talk about uh, limiting snowmobile use in, in critical caribou habitat now. In 2000, let me, sorry, let me just backtrack a bit. In 2008, the, the province came out with a new caribou recovery plan. Total disaster. Nine populations have gone extinct since they came out with this plan. But in it, they tried to account for uh, the impact of snowmobiles and heli skiing on caribou by uh, enacting uh, closures where these machines were not allowed. Winter motorized recreation is the sort of unwieldy term. But uh, from when the science team that they had uh, developing this plan, they made these recommendations based on keeping these. Uh, snowmobiles and heli skiing out of winter critical habitat. Uh, but the negotiated boundaries of the closures were much less than the science team had recommended because they just didn't want to restrict the use of snowmobiles because it was so important to local communities economically. Then the other flaw about that was the, uh, the closures were uh, mostly ineffective. Uh, there was no enforcement mechanism. There were several other reasons I won't bore you with the detail about why the closures were ineffective, but they but they were and demonstrably so. Anyway, this 2000 study didn't account for that, so my colleagues and I uh, sort of re, re, redid the study, reanalyzed the data, found totally different results, and and published a paper saying that the study was flawed. Well, that doesn't mean it was wrong, just because they failed to. To, to prove to our satisfaction that uh, there are central hypotheses that if you kill enough wolves, the caribou will be protected. That's uh, it. Might just be that they failed to prove it, and a, and a properly designed study would show the same thing. Right, and that's basically what they said was. And they've published some papers since, you know, to their credit, uh, correcting the errors that we identified, though they didn't give us credit for it, and. Uh, and they, they they go on saying this, but they're they're careful not not to apply that too much, like in southern areas. You know, the southern Selkirk caribou herd was dwindling, uh, but through the 
2000s, there were still dozens of caribou in that herd, even though it had gone down quite a bit. This is the, right on the border. Well, they went extinct in 2018. Uh, after they had killed all the wolves. So it didn't work. Yeah, they, and they, they, they killed all the wolves and the population still went extinct. Right. And uh, this is just an anecdote, but if you look at the data, uh, especially throughout the southern you know, mountain area, southern mountain caribou area, uh, there's just no, no relationship at all with killing wolves and saving caribou. Right. Caribou are going down anyway. Can you explain why it's so important that we save the caribou? Can you just give us like an understanding of what the value they bring to the ecosystem that listeners might like, I've never seen a caribou. I've never interacted with one. It's, it's hard to develop that relationship with something when you don't have a good understanding of, of um, what they are and how they live and how they impact their ecosystems. Um, but you do recall the image on one side of the Canadian quarter, right? Yes. It's a caribou. Right. And that's because caribou was so important to the, you know, the founding and development of, of modern Canada, well, the colonial period, but also the the, the, the pre-colonial period when uh, throughout the country, uh, the First Nations people always lived on caribou. They, they hunted them, they ate them, and they and they you know they had you know myths about them, and uh, maybe I shouldn't say myths, but they had uh, stories about the caribou and how how they related to the people. And this is you know I, I worked with First Nations people all over this country. Well, all over the western and northern parts of this country, and they all had, you know, deep regard for caribou. Anyway, uh, if you never saw a caribou, uh, well, first of all, I'm sad to say you probably never will. Although, if you go up north, you know, northern Yukon, far enough, in northern BC and Yukon, you still can see caribou. There still are some there. They're still hunted in, in some parts of northern BC. So there still are some caribou in northern Yukon. There's you can go in Yukon and all over the Mackenzie. There's still caribou, and of course in the hierarchy, there's herds of you know tens of thousands. As a biologist who's had the opportunity to to hunt them, to be involved with them, to see them live, what is it like to find out that like certain species of them have gone extinct? Well, here, here's an example that's close close to me. I told you that I used to see them all the time after I built my cabin and you know, just driving around the, you know, the logging roads, even the main highway. There were always caribou there in you know, late fall. And my son and I went for a mountain hike. He, he was you know, a young man just uh, striking out on his own. But he and I got together in 2000, sorry, uh, 1999. And we went up in the mountains behind the cabin. And there were a fair number of caribou up there. He took pictures. I took pictures, and I, you know, bull caribou and females with calves, and you know, a nice. This is right behind our cabin. And it's up in the high country. Well, he treasures that time. He knows he'll never see a caribou, and his son, my grand grandsons, my granddaughter, they'll never see one. Not around there, anyway. They have to go up to the Yukon to see a caribou, and because there just aren't any left. That that whole big block of mountains where my cabin is, uh, aerial monitoring of caribou population shows that there's none there. 
and they've just been chased away by the heli skiers and snowmobilers and and a few have been eaten by wolves, although that's hardly been documented in this area. A few have been eaten by uh, by cougars. Uh, that population is still hanging on, but it's not in that block of mountains. It's further back. There still are about two dozen at last count. Right. And when I moved in there, there were like hundreds. The first survey, which was after they'd been declining for years, there were you know around 400 caribou in that patch of mountains. So the de- how fast was that decline from when there were 400 to when there was none? How long was that period? That's about 20 years. That's that's in, that's amazing. Yeah. So in that population, that's now the southernmost population of mountain caribou in Canada, and there are about two dozen in that population, where there used to be 400. And further to the south, another population, southern Selkirk population, is gone. Southern Purcell population, gone. Across the lake, where I could see the mountaintops peeking up through the trees in my, in my cabin, that whole range of monoshies used to be caribou habitat. I've seen caribou habitat. I mean, I've seen caribou there. Yeah. None. Zero. They went to went to zero and declared functionally extinct in 2016, I think it was. Yeah. Another population up uh, between uh, Revelstoke and the and the Alberta border gone. None there. And there, you know, of the 18 or so subpopulations of southern mountain caribou, nine of them, at least nine, are completely extinct. And some of them only have two or three animals at last count, which was a couple of years ago. Right. So, uh, I mean, I, I I feel bad for the caribou because I I know them. You know, I hunted them. I was there when they were, they were at their peak of their population. You know, and when I was guiding, we would carry, you know, carry beef and, and pork up with us up in the high country on in, in the panniers and, and backpacks of the, of the of the pack horses. But when that over a long hunt, it would run out, and then we thought nothing of shooting a, a young caribou bull for camp meat. Yeah, it was just the way it was done. It was technically illegal, but even the wildlife service guys that we'd meet with occasionally acknowledged that, and they said, "Oh, we're not talking about that. There's lots of caribou." Yeah, and now that's a completely different. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't long after that they began uh, closing the hunting uh, over most of the province, including the area around my cabin in Selkirk. All that area has been closed for you know, almost fifty years now, but still the populations are going down. And like I said, they're still hunting them in the north, where there still is uh, huntable populations, and there are some guides and outfitters that make a make a good living taking clients and there are some clients that are very happy to have a chance to shoot a caribou uh, i just think it'd be a shame to, to lose the caribou i mean we have lost so many already so many like whole subpopulations yeah i think it's completely possible that we'll lose the whole of the southern population which this genetic research shows are unique they're not part of this so-called you know southern mountain ecozone that the government defined erroneously and 2000. Yeah. They're unique and we're going to lose them. And uh, sooner rather than later, I, I think, I think in my lifetime, I'm 70, I'll be 75 soon. That's how long I think the last ones will, will last. And 
from let's get into what's going on with the government's kind of handling of this because you and i think that this is where it's important um to, for listeners to understand there is a process in which the government like we talk about studies and we talk about research and and that makes people feel good that, that research is taking place or something like that but from how you've kind of described it the government preferentially chooses uh consultants perhaps research um that goes along with uh, their economic goals um, that meet certain objectives that they have independent of whether or not they're going to actually save the caribou. And so you kind of laid out that they brought together these committees um, and that they put one t- committee together and then they fired them and then they brought another committee in, and then they, they disbanded that and then they brought in another uh, to try and get information that they want, they they hoped that they would hear. They were kind of trying to figure out who's going to give us what we want to hear. Can you describe that to listeners? Just what took place? Well, the government started getting worried about caribou. In 85, there was a workshop in Kamloops. Uh, uh, about 10 years later, and also there were some big uh, land use management plans in that era that were being developed. Uh, uh, what do they call them? There was an acronym for it. I forget anyway. Land use management plans being developed. And so they put together this science team, team of biologists, and they, so the first caribou uh, Recovery plan was, uh, I think it was dated '95 thereabouts, and they did actually protect some area. They drew lines, you know, around high mountain caribou habitat, not low mountain, because they didn't want to didn't want to take away the fiber for the pulp mills and the sawmills. Uh, but the, anyway, the they recommended that the they start they seriously curtail logging in critical caribou habitats. Well, the government didn't like that, so they uh, put the report on the shelf, buried it as deeply as they could. No, um, I have a copy. Uh, and what do they, you What do you mean when you say they buried it? Like, well, I'm what sorry, is I'm being a little flippant. They just ignored it. They they fired the biology or disbanded the committee that they had assembled to advise them, and they formed another committee with other biologists. Some of them were the same ones. How do they go about justifying that? What are their reasons to say these biologists are not helpful uh, or they didn't come to a useful con- Like, How do you go about getting rid of one committee and switching it out without drawing attention to yourself? Because a layperson like me goes, well, what's wrong with these biologists and why? what are these other biologists going to do that's different? I, I can't answer that. Okay. I mean, I... Uh, you know, the, the government just didn't want to know it, and logging's an important industry, and they just said, well, let's, let's find a solution that doesn't involve curtailing logging. So then they formed another committee, and they, they came with a report 2002, same thing. So they disbanded the committee, put the report on the shelf, and formed another, what they called a, a caribou science team. And they, they seemed like they were really going to get serious this time, and they from 2000 to 2006, 2008, that team worked and they came up with a a third caribou recovery plan. It was really difficult. The negotiations were really hard and protracted. I was uh, I had friends in the environmental groups that were you know on the committee. Some of them left because they, they their opinions weren't being heard, and the ones that stayed sort of just bit their Get their tongue and toughed it out. Negotiations were really hard. You know, the the, the logging companies uh, they had representatives on the committees, and there was like a main committee, and then there was a political committee, and then a science committee, and then 
regional committees, like for every herd, or there's a group of caribou herds. And uh, they did their best to come up with a good plan. And in the area behind my cabin, it actually wasn't too bad. They ended up saving a fair amount of, of caribou high elevation habitat, mainly because the Valhalla Wilderness Society and, and two or three other wild site, I forget which uh, environmental groups, they really dug in their heels. And they were about to lose the whole thing. And then politically, I think that the, uh, uh, the government just said, well, no, let's, let's give them that. It's high elevation. Timber's not worth much anyway. Uh, but the, the, the process was constrained uh, politically. Uh, the, the marching orders in 2006 were to not uh, have a plan that reduces the amount of logging. And that's a bit of an overstatement. It provided for some logging, you know, some, uh, some, you know, potentially loggable stands of, of, of forest being protected as caribou habitat. But overall, they were, there was like a zero uh, net loss, a no net loss policy was given to them at the start in 2006, where they weren't the government at the political level wasn't willing to uh, accept any loss of fiber flow to the sawmills and pulp mills. So that's what the, the people on these committees, that's what they had to work with. They worked really hard. I mean, they were, you know, drawing, you know, maps and they had these GIS systems spewing out maps one after the other as they negotiated, you know, they reach a point, they say, okay, good, let's, map, let's you know, draw these lines. And, and then, then they would be back to the drawing board the next week, trying, you know, the, the logging company would say, look, that's a really viable, valuable piece of timber right there. Let's, let us log that and take this other, you know, other forest to timber isn't, isn't as valuable for logging, but still good for caribou and let the caribou have that. So there were a lot of this give and take, and it was really tough negotiations. I, I credit all the people with working hard problem is that they had this constraint yeah and it ended up being there's there's zero recognition of this low elevation habitat that the curve would absolutely need right this is very frustrating to hear because you're talking about conservation um I'm in law school right now, and we talk about the Delgamuke case. We talk about the Marshall decision, and the Supreme Court of Canada basically says something like, you're allowed to have your indigenous rights and title so long as conservation is met. And when you're describing how conservation works, where we bring in industries who, in my opinion, shouldn't be at that table, and if even if they are allowed to be at that table for um, economic purposes, because I do understand we have an important economy and natural resources are important, they should not be able to um, set the requirements of what's not like having a net zero impact on my business. That's That doesn't seem like a middle ground to me. And so when I learn about decisions about conservation and how the government of Canada and BC is able to um, limit Indigenous rights and title for the sake of conservation, and then you start describing how conservation discussions and committees take place it has it sounds like less to do with the science of what's actually going to save these caribou and more about pol political kind of movements and how are we going to make sure the economy is not impacted while we try and save these caribou and it doesn't sound like it's a hundred percent we're going to save these caribou it's well what's the low-hanging fruit that's not going <laughs> to impact anything um 
what was that like to watch? Do you think that this is an effective system that we, like, it sounds like good work was still done, but would you like to see these committees in the future set up differently? Is it better under an NDP government versus a liberal government? Because it sounds like 2006, that would have been the liberal government, uh, Gordon uh, Campbell, if I'm not mistaken, uh, would have been leading that. Would that have made any impact? Do you see improvements now with an NDP government? They seem to tout more care for um, the environment. No, I don't think so. Uh, this letting the caribou decline because of habitat loss has been going on through several changes of government. I don't think the NDP has been any better. The NDP, they uh, they they talk well, but they have all these. Oh, let's go back a minute. 2017, I as an individual. Uh, wrote a letter to the minister, federal minister of environment. They have this uh, species at risk act, which provides for emergency orders. If uh, so I'd had enough. So I wrote to her and I said to the minister, I said, they're logging in caribou critical habitat. This is habitat defined as critical by the federal government uh, in, a, in 2014 when the, the federal government came out with their uh, recovery plan. So I said, look, and I just there are pictures of logging in, in the uh, in the area behind my cabin in caribou habitat. I asked her to do an emergency order and stop the logging, and also stop snowmobiling and some other. You know, just just those two snowmobiling and logging. Well, uh, two other uh, groups. I was an individual, but two groups of environmental people at the same or about the same time. Uh, we're developing similar requests for orders. Uh, we shared notes, I have to tell you. Uh, one up north and, um, and one in the south, Valhalla Wilderness Society was one. So we, the minister received these re three requests for emergency orders to stop the logging and, and, and snowmobiling in critical and federally designated critical caribou habitat in several areas up in, in the southern caribou country. Well, to do that, uh, the Species at Risk Act lets, lets the federal government do it, but to do so, they have to step on the province's toes. And then there's a process that has to go through. So uh, right away, the the feds contacted the province. I don't know what they might have said. I've sought the correspondence through, freedom, through Access to Information Act. They delayed, 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 and they finally sent me all this redacted stuff. That you know, I can't even see who you know who was writing to whom. Anyway, they consulted with the province, and the province realized that this is a really big deal. If the, if the feds have to step in and give these emergency orders, that's going to be a big impact on our snowmobiling, heli hiking, and logging industry. So the, the province then seemed to get serious, and they formed a, a committee. They worked with the Soto First Nation up north, not just the Soto. There's two, two or three bands involved. I forget all which they were. It was led by the Soto, I think. And good people. They worked hard. They, they put in, I told you about their maternity pen. Yeah. And wolf collar. They, they, those are northern caribou. They're not even southern mountain caribou. Uh, anyway, uh, the government started developing this, uh, I mean, both governments, mainly the province, led by the province. They started uh, negotiating an improved recovery plan. And they first had a formal agreement with the, those First Nations up north, which they saw as, as a 
a critical uh, way of proceeding, which was right and proper. But to do that, they delayed dealing with the southern herds or the southern peoples uh, whose territory includes those herds. Uh, but th then they uh, were, started working towards an overarching agreement, in the, which they finally signed, I think, about a year, a little over a year, less than a year ago, for these southern areas. Uh, to, uh, but then now, now they're working on like herd specific plans. So, like each so uh, the umbrella agreement covers general principles, and then they have to have a plan for each herd. Well, in the process, they're completely ignoring my paper that said that this previous paper was flawed and that uh, killing wolves might not be the best way to save caribou, and that there, are, in fact, are other ways that whether you kill caribou or kill wolves or not, you still have to do these other things, otherwise you're going to have no caribou. And those other things are habitat protection and uh, uh, limiting uh, winter motorized recreation in their habitat. Right. So uh, I think I'm kind of rambling about and getting to the answer to your question, but no, I don't think it's the liberal or, or conservative or NDP government that is the solution. What I think is the solution is, uh, is let the First Nations people manage the wildlife and the habitat in their territories. They'll do a much better job of it than Frankly, the provincial or the federal governments will. And we've shown that already in the Quincy's Awe territory up north. Those are uh, uh, dinner people. Yeah. So it doesn't look like forming these committees is very effective. And the other thing I'm, I'm kind of getting out of this is that there's a problem with not bringing in people like yourself. Like you've worked with various organizations as a biologist why aren't they consulting with you? Like when I'm reading these interesting articles about, and they're referencing your work of there's no statistical evidence to support uh, wolf culling to save caribou habitats. Um, you've helped inform. It sounds like even though they didn't give you credit, they've they've given you credit for like they've followed your work, but they have not acknowledged your involvement. Why aren't they bringing in? individuals like yourself who've been working on this, it sounds like for about 20 years now, you've been mon at least monitoring the situation, whether or not you're coming out with papers every year, irrelevant. You've been monitoring the policies that are taking place, what you think would be genuine solutions. Um, you propose papers, you help address the problems that are going on. Why aren't they saying, hey, Lee, you got you to gotta get in here. Let's, let's figure out a plan to save these caribou. That seems to be why we're investing all this money in all these consultants. Let's just get it done. Let's make sure that we don't, we at least have the caribou into the future what what's going on uh, well I'm, I'm afraid i've burned a few bridges made i don't know not enemies exactly but i'm sort of persona non grata in the this fraternity of caribou biologists uh, it's not that they don't think that i'm right and myself and my co-authors uh, there's been enough follow-up work showing that our, our paper was criticizing this previous paper was completely valid. Uh, uh, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the message. And it's not so bad. It's not like shooting the messenger. I mean, I, I, I'm a good biologist. I have a good reputation. My biologist can't be ruined by, you know, by people getting mad at me. Uh, I still publish in journals. Uh, but the, the people reading the journals uh, they, they agree with me. You know, the academics, the, the, the scientists in the universities who are you know, working on these, these problems, we're all in agreement. 
about what the problem is and what the solutions are. The government just doesn't want to hear it. So they, they don't want to hear me. I just don't understand how you can, like, why have, why even bother? Why even tell people that you're trying to save the caribou then? As they've put in implemented uh, plans in place, they've failed, they've killed wolves um, by helicopter, which I'd like to talk more about. Um, but they've, they've done the things and it hasn't worked. You've said that they've gone extinct since bringing in these policies. So why even waste their time trying to say that they're trying to save the caribou? Why even have any committees at all if they're not going to have any impact, if they're not going to hear from people like yourself? Like I just, I, I have trouble understanding why even give the lip service at all. I couldn't have said it better myself. But basically what it is is this the federal threat of these uh, emergency orders was so profound. The province, as I see it, and this is just my personal opinion, but this is what it looks like to me, the province is going through all the, you know, the lip movements of protecting caribou just to keep the feds from coming with these emergency orders. And it wasn't, like I said, it was not just my request for emergency order. There were these two others, you know, well, well written, well thought out, uh, that uh, spurred the federal government into action and that spurred the provincial government into action. But they're not going to, well, a, a caribou biologist uh, who I know and, and respect in the, in the Kootenays told colleagues of mine, not me directly, in a meeting, formal meeting, they just would not hear about limiting snowmobiles. This is in the area of that herd that I mentioned, the, the, Latin, the now the southernmost herd after several other uh, subpopulations have gone extinct. Southernmost herd, gone from you know 400 animals down to 26 at last count. And pervasive with snowmobiles and caribou habitat, and the government won't even think about uh, limiting, won't even talk about it. Do you think that at all, like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Tentree, but they're a company you buy, uh, they're, I think they're based out of Vancouver, you buy like a sweater, and they agree to, to plant 10 trees for when you buy their clothing. So I have some 10 tree sweaters, they plant trees as a consequence of my purchase. Do you think there's a, like, I think of people who go snowmobiling, who enjoy these recreations, I'm sure that regular consumers that are enjoying these experiences, they don't want to contribute to the death of caribou or the extinction of caribou, all for them to go riding. Is there a way we can take their money and invest it and have them pay a little bit extra when they go snowmobiling or when they, they go hella skiing and have that money dedicated towards protecting the caribou so that everybody wins? They get to have their snowmobiling and their skiing and we take some of that money and we protect the caribou. That seems like an easier solution than convincing government officials who are usually uh, hoping for purse strings um, to, to make some difference, to actually address this issue. Because as a consumer, if you start warning people, hey, you do this, you're going to make the caribou extinct. There's going to be a little bit of guilt there on everyday consumers like myself of like, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. I know that uh, we're losing biodiversity in the world and I don't want to be a contributor to that. Do you think that that would be a solution that would perhaps persuade these big industries looking at building giant spaces for hella skiing to say hey if you pay 20 bucks more each time you come we're gonna put that money towards protecting the caribou do you think that that's a solution at all that's an interesting idea and the idea is well presented i wish there were more people like you working on these problems but let me ask you one question those 10 trees where were they planted oh i have no idea see that, that that's the problem 
when I was a when I was a, a Cub Scout leader, and my son was in the Cub Scouts back, way back when, uh, we had a program to plant trees. I think they the Scouts did it every year for a, a while, and where we planted trees was. You know, we had a hard time finding them in our neighborhood, so we went up and down the, you know, the, the vacant lots. We planted trees all over the vacant lot, right, right away, and you know, along the roadsides. Well, every single place we planted trees was later, not much later, subdivided, and right. those, those trees were gone. The federal government, uh, you know, as an election promise, they were going to plant what two billion trees. Yeah. Where the thing is, where are they going to plant these trees? When, when you log. When you take down the forest, you're required to replant, and they they replant. There's a vigorous tree replanting program in Canada, in British Columbia. Uh, it employs a lot of people, and a lot of com- uh, companies make a good living raising trees, and the uh, timber harvest companies they have to replant them. L- uh, less so on naturally burned areas that are outside of the commercial timber zone. Leave that aside. But anyway, within the commercial timber area, they're required to plant trees, and and that's that's all virtually all the caribou habitat is in those areas where the companies are planting trees anyway. Yeah. Well, the problem is not that they're not reforesting, so planting the trees isn't going to help. The problem is that they cut down so many and so quickly that it's going to take even if they stop logging completely in caribou low elevation winter habitat will still be 300 years until the forest grows up and like the light or the lichens that they eat are fairly slow growing right you know they're a combination of fungus and plant they're fairly slow growing you know these, these forests that they're cutting are 250 300 years old at a minimum well that's a long time to wait until you've got caribou habitat and especially if you think caribou are going to be extinct in the area and you know couple of decades yeah yeah i'm hoping so, to have the person from Tentry on to explain more about what you're saying because you're right that we risk going back down a path of lip service if we let corporations basically say look we're saving the caribou i would just say perhaps that you can have a little bit more optimism because it's easier to see you're saying that in the next 20 years we could have no caribou left and so if they're saying that they're helping with this and then the caribou do go extinct well then they didn't really help yeah, that doesn't mean that the ten trees idea is not a good idea. It's just not good for caribou. Yeah. It might be good for a lot of other, you know, birds, deer, you know, whatever. Yeah. But then there's the also there. There's the lesson of of uh, Brazil and the uh, Amazon rainforest, where somebody maybe like yourself came up with the idea that if you know if all the world's conservationists got together and like paid Brazil. To not log their rainforest, and Brazil could take that money instead of the tax money that would otherwise get from logging. Although they don't get much because most of it's illegal, but that's a side issue. So Brazil actually accepted many millions of dollars from the international conservationist community to not log portions of their rainforest, the biggest rainforest on the planet. Yeah, considered like a lung to the planet, right? Yeah, a lung to the well, then they get this new uh, conservative, not not tarring with that brush intentionally, but he's a conservative politician, Bolsonaro. Uh, he, he's really a pro-business guy. He dismantled all these agreements. 
And he turns a blind eye to the illegal logging. He permits more legal logging in areas where he dares. And where he doesn't dare, he just has his people, he has actually dismantled the the, uh, the environmental and, and forestry management parts of agencies that that would have caught illegal logging. We're catching illegal logging right. and, 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 and living legal logging to areas where it wouldn't do that much harm. So now I just heard on the paper yesterday, there's been more uh, logging of the Amazon rainforest in the past year than ever. Right. This is after the international community. And all the fires that were taking place, what, a year or two oh, ago? Oh, yeah. Those fires, they, they were devastating. And on top of the fires now, now we're, now we're logging again. Yeah. And from my understanding, we do get a lot of pharmaceutical positive benefits from the, the Amazon. And, and the, it's so diverse, biodiverse, that there's a lot to get out of those areas. Yeah. Uh, this is much to the detriment of the native people who live in those areas too and they, they have themselves fought against logging and other encroachment in their territories for well for 100 years and and they're losing the battle they don't they don't like it they're not happy but there's nothing they can do and even less they can do now with this particular president right so it's uh, i mean they're losing their livelihoods if they don't like leave their villages and you know go to rio de janeiro or sao paulo and you know, get a job driving a truck or whatever, then they're not going to be able to make a living from the forest because the forest is gone. So we talk a lot about climate change. It's, it's a big topic for a lot of people. And part of climate change is the lack of biodiversity. So do you feel like it is a lot of lip service or do you feel like there's a lot of good initiatives taking place that we can all be very optimistic about? Well, I'm of two minds. There's a lot of really good work that's being done. The theoretical work. And you've mentioned some ideas, that have, and some of that's been put into practice. So there's practical work, like 10 trees is a good idea. And there's a lot of, if you go through the, you know, the climate change and the biodiversity, by the way, you probably didn't know this, the International Convention on Biological Diversity, Biodiversity Convention, was signed in my office. Really? When I worked for the Canadian Wildlife Service. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, well, they just needed a, a Brian Mulroney uh, acceded to the treaty on behalf of Canada. Yeah. In my office, to signed the documents. Wow. And they just needed a space with a nice view out the window, I guess. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, but I was involved in, in, in that, you know, from a, you know, a lowly, sort of mid-level bureaucrat working for Environment Canada. Uh, Biodiversity Convention was a good idea. And there's been an awful lot of good work. Well, you, you've heard the, the COP26 or whatever, on that, that relates to climate change. So there's been a lot of curtailment of uh, greenhouse gases, uh, climate change. And before that, we actually solved the ozone problem. 1987, the Montreal Protocol, where all the countries of the world got together and agreed to limit chlorofluorocarbons or to ban them. And at that time, the ozone was, there were holes in the stratospheric ozone layer, and you know all that story. So we, we it's not that we can't do these things. We actually solved that one problem. What was that like to, to see play out from your perspective? Because I, I don't think I was, I don't think I, was, born. <laughs> I wasn't born yet. But it looks like one of the best case studies that humans, we can do good. We can 
um, like for indigenous people, it's commonplace to consider ourselves stewards for the land. That seems lost on perhaps other cultures, on other communities um, in comparison. And so I feel like that's a good case study for people to go, it is possible to make a good difference, to set a good example, to um, be a part of something good. But sometimes it seems like climate change is so broad. Like I see we had the floods here in the Fraser Valley and politicians leaped on the opportunity to start blaming climate change <laughs> rather than admitting that the dike systems were like a one out of four in terms of their quality. Yeah. And then it's like it seems disingenuous to blame and then you get people who are skeptical of climate change because they're like, well, the dikes were not repaired properly. And then you're saying it's climate change, even though if we look at the dikes, that's your responsibility as the government to maintain. Then we get into infighting because people are so confused on, is it climate change? Is it man-made errors and failures in governments? Um, do you feel like we're, we're all on the same page and that um, good things are going to come in the future in terms of, of these steps. And what do you think of what happened with the ozone layer? Well, the ozone layer was was a good success. Uh, I guess it was because it was only one industry and one chemical, and it was sort of easy. People could get their minds around it the, once they understood the physics. How you know the chlorofluorocarbons, you know, this molecule goes up and it damages an ozone molecule, and then that ozone molecule is gone, but the chlorofluorocarbon molecule is still there and goes and damaged, and that's what propagate. Uh, people could get their minds around it. Uh, climate change is harder, but I've not understood uh, why reasonable people and smart people resisted so long. Uh, I published my first paper on the effects of you know, weather on uh, uh, on the capacity of the particular West Coast environment in 1988. In that same year, I went to the first meeting of of uh, federal you know bureaucrats like myself and some uh, sort of sub politician sub one uh, to deal with 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 climate change and the federal. This was all these are federal bureaucrats. Uh, somebody from Ottawa came. And, Table some draft legislation that would limit climate change. Right now, it was uh, uh, it was uh, it was uh, you could use regulations to put a limit on what how much carbon people could discharge or carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide plus methane, depending on how it was configured. So that would have been easy. This was 1988. Non-controversial at the time, I assume, in comparison to well, now. Well, no, I, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. At that time, the the government still didn't uh, admit that climate change. It, it said you know, physics looked like it was a possibility, but the data weren't in saying it was actually happening. That didn't come until '91, the first uh, uh, first big international report. Well, coincidentally, I mean, I, you know, I had done this study and didn't even relate to that. It was uh, I was working for the Environmental Protection Service. And, pulp mills and the pulp mills were polluting and we had this incident where uh, where a whole, uh, a whole salmon run was destroyed in the area where the where the pulp mill was polluting not because of the pulp mill per se although it contributed but the, the problem was that the water got too warm unreasonably warm and un, it had never been that warm this was the Sumas River so it was an effective weather my paper was the effective weather I didn't realize it was part of climate change but 
it wasn't long until and, and then I, I I had a job for environment counter where I was supposed to look forward to some uh, coming problems that we'd have to deal with and it all had to do with biological diversity really but I, uh, I uh, and that was actually in the in the lead up to the real convention on biological diversity but at the same time I was looking at the climate trends and I realized that the Precipitation was going up on the coast. There were several things, you know, insect infestations were going up. This was my research was this was in late late eighties, early nineties. My report came out in in uh, ninety four after it had been peer reviewed. The whole thing was peer reviewed twice because the politicians couldn't believe what they were reading the first time, or the, or the managers. Uh, so then, uh, this was ninety four. Uh, I had some chapters on effective climate change. And then the government was going into the Kyoto uh, Protocol uh, meetings in, well, in Kyoto, and they needed to be briefed. So some of us, myself and some others who could contribute, we actually wrote a, a book, a good, big, thick book on uh, pro- climate change projections and environmental response to, to the climate change, to the projections for BC and Yukon. I wrote the environmental response chapter uh, and so that was basically it was it was published in 97 same year as the, the kyoto protocols well there was good science the good science underlying the, the, the climate change projection and good science underlying underlying the response to the climate change protection and we mentioned the sumas river and the you know in the aperture and sumas lake and the dikes and that was like prominent in the thing in the report, and most of it not by me, other people, you know, the dike experts, the river flow experts wrote yeah. those those sections. So that was ninety seven, and and by that time, I had already had some years of of looking at this climate change issue. And from then until, well, only two or three years ago, all the governments of the world basically ignored it or denied it. And then they had these climate change denial people saying that the science wasn't true, mainly, you know, I don't know where they come from, where they get these ideas, but mainly in the states, but supported by the oil industry, who had a lot to lose if they started putting controls on emissions of carbon dioxide and methane. I don't understand why, since I wrote these reports, and I was only one of, you know, many, you know, biologists and meteorologists and, you know, physical uh, environment specialists. It's been known since then. And why are we still now just debating it? And and Canada has, I'm sorry to say, has just not been effective in developing their climate change plans. No government, not, not, not liberal, not conservative in Canada, just completely ineffective. And they they come up with all these ideas that I, I think are crazy, you know, this, uh, you know, the tax structure, well, the tax structure looked like it had a chance of working, but, you know, carbon trading credits and everything, and, you know, it's like your 10 trees. It, it's a good idea, but if it's not implemented right, it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, and they, they're not taking it seriously. They're not taking it so seriously that they have to actually you know, cur- curtail industry. My my struggle, I guess, is that on everyday people, we feel, I, th- I think, 
I think it's comparable to the idea of original sin in the biblical stories. The idea that uh, when people go shopping, when they drive their car, when they take a flight somewhere, there's like a deep guilt about I'm destroying the planet. And when I'm driving my car, like people feel better about themselves when they get an electric car. We feel pretty good about this ourselves when we think of BC Hydro because it's it's less harmful than perhaps other routes. But there's this personal guilt I see so many people carry when it comes to shopping, when it comes to buying products. We're looking for the little green leaves because the little green leaves make us feel like we're not bad people anymore. And it makes us feel like we're on the right track. And then when you start describing how the government's handled caribou, um, when they're perhaps not doing things that would actually make a positive impact because it's not friendly to industries or it's not going to be supported by certain certain companies. Um, it's concerning because all the weight seems to be falling on people. Like people are always asking, what can I do to help with climate change? Can I switch out my light bulb? Can I do this? Can I? And it's like, those are all great things. But at an individual level, that's that's positive and we should all try and do better. But when you see the governments who are kind of making us feel bad, they're putting the tax on us. I don't like that relationship where it feels like the onus has been been put on the individual when it sounds like companies and larger industries have a larger role to play and we don't direct that that energy towards them. And I'm interested in your thoughts on perhaps these environmental organizations, because I agree with the fur bearers analysis, but I, I don't know how you feel about them, but sometimes they feel, um, they feel too far. They feel too far on one side where it's hard for me as an individual to go, you're right. hundred percent of the time. I think the fur bearers page is against any hunting or trapping at all ever. And to me, it's like, as an indigenous person, I know that communities have a relationship with their responsibilities to hunt and fish and to handle things properly. We have salmon ceremonies to give thanks when we when we fish, and we, we have a responsibility in re- these regards. And so when you say zero, I can't go that far with you. And so when I'm putting myself in perhaps the government shoes, I go, well, I can't listen to these people because they're too on one side. And then you go to the industries, and they've got all the money, and they're all on one side. And so you're not having a balanced conversation because one side you can't take too seriously and they don't have a lot of financial backing and then the other side has all financial backing and they're going to help with your with your campaign next year and they're going to help make sure that this influence and that this study is funded and all these things and so it's easier to listen to industry than than environmental organizations so i'm interested in your thoughts you've worked with environmental organizations a long time what are your thoughts on perhaps the good ones or what you've experienced i wish more people thought like you and you said it well and this is actually the success of all this environmental work is that you can have these thoughts and you can realize that there are environmental you know, actions and policies that, that, that have a meaning and make a difference. And my friends, I, I, I'm not a member of a conservation club, except, well, I guess not any. Uh, but I have friends in, in there and I admire their work. I have worked with them a lot. I, I've contributed objective science as best I can to to help them out. I've not gone on the, you know, I haven't, you know, made a placard and marched the streets with them. Uh, but this is where we, we have had success. The very fact that we're talking about this means there's been some success. The fact that people are buying prizes, this is all success. People have taken it on an individual level, not everybody, but enough people that has made a difference. They've made a market for prize cars, for example. And you know, my wife and I at home, we limit our plastics and we do everything we can. We change our bulbs out. And we do all this thing and, and, and all that's good. Uh, 
the problem is it's not it's not enough. If we go back to you know climate change is one thing. If we go back to the biodiversity convention, an awful lot of good work has been done. First of all, there's been good research by by scientists showing you know how to preserve the not just places but the ecological functions within those places and also outside of those places. Uh, a lot of uh, new protected areas have been established since '88 when the first uh, sustainability idea came out. Olson was the Wilson was the guy's name. Um, so if you look around the world and you have this, this convention, the Biodiversity Convention, ratified in my office, signed in Rio the previous year, '92, uh, they had mandated the countries try to protect so many percent of their, you know, their country. And a lot of countries have done this. And so there have been a whole lot of, including in Canada, new new territory. The problem is, if you just look at caribou, well, none of those areas have, are in caribou habitat. There are a few small ones, perhaps. But they're happy to protect vast swaths of the Arctic, which I happen to love because I worked in the Arctic for years. You know, I've seen wild polar bears and had them come into my calf, you know, all this. I worked with Inuit people, and and I I think that's wonderful to protect, you know, for example, a a great huge swath of Banks Island, another great huge swath of of, uh, of Bathurst Island where I worked, and other big chunks. And in northwestern BC in the Tlingit country, a huge um, protected area. I think it's a provincial park. I'm not sure what the designation, but it's a big area and it's protected. Some mining incursions, but we won't have to go there. But so all this has been good and successful, and as a result of all the work, smart people like yourself uh, carrying the banner. But it, it hasn't. Governments, at all levels, have really not not stepped up to the plate to use a baseball term they've they haven't taken that idea and said well you know how will this apply to the caribou or, or, or what what about the wolves are they important enough that we should resist from shooting them from planes and find some other way to solve the caribou problem they, they haven't gone that far and they're constrained because uh, i guess of all powerful economics and powerful economic interests Right. Can we talk about um, wolf culling? I want to get your perspectives on what's taking place in terms of um, killing wolves from planes. Because when I read it, it was so hard to to imagine that this is happening, that this is taking place. That in British Columbia, like when I first read it, I was like helicopters taking guns, shooting them from planes, and then it sounds like flying away. Like to me, and like. I don't mean to lean into the too much into just being indigenous, but like that goes against this relationship we have this with the environment. And I'm sure that other people would like to have stronger relationships, but indigenous culture is very strong in that regard. We, we have responsibility. Uh, like I just interviewed Sonny McKelsey, who's a Stolo uh, historian and researcher, and he talks about the salmon ceremony and how we all share one the first salmon um, with as many people as we can. And then we return the bones to the water and we give thanks to that and we say a prayer for that. And it's similar to grace in that regard of giving thanks for our food, that we would never go out and just murder on um, at scale a bunch of animals and then just leave. 
and not do anything. And I think of the effects not only of just killing these wolves, which I think are admired and loved by so many people, but the research also shows that they... Um, they impact mid-sized predators that allow for greater biodiversity um, across BC. They take out the mid-sized ones, so the little ones have actually a better chance of surviving. And so it's not just not helping the caribou. It's not just uh, terrible for your ears or your eyes to have to read about what you're doing, but it actually has negative impacts to the biodiversity of the environment. And so can you explain how this came about and, and what your thoughts are on wolf culling? Yeah. Um, first of all, let me tell you a story. Uh, I'll make I'll make it fairly short. I was in the Arctic. This is 1973 or two, I guess. I uh, hired this native guy, the Kikiza. That's Athapaskan tribe. He and I were up in the high country, and the plan was to snowshoe down this river, I was studying beaver. I had a beaver study to do. So I was studying beavers, and we were going to snow down this river until spring break up and then build a boat and carry on down to a, a rendezvous place at a lake. Well, it was an ill-conceived idea. It was totally my fault. I, no way I could have built a boat, even with a First Nations guy helping me. He just looked at this thing we cobbled together and scratched his head. Anyway... I could make it a longer story, but the short form is we tipped the boat over in the water, water still running with ice. Uh, uh, Henry scrambled up the bank. I saw he was okay. So I swam down the river uh, trying to find our floating stuff and throw it up on the riverbank so we wouldn't lose all of our stuff until I, my legs seized up and I just sank. And he... Uh, I came to leaning against a tree. I couldn't talk. You know, when you have severe hypothermia, you know, your muscles just go numb. So Henry's laughing. He's got a fire going. He's thawing me out. He's got a fire, you know, three feet away, four or five. He's chuckling to himself. And when I, you know, hours went by before I could talk. And I said, Henry, why are you laughing? We're in the hell of a fix. And he said, he said, well, we're going to, we're going to travel like Indian now. Uh, and I realized at the time, you know, we were carrying all this huge amount of stuff with, you know, food from the south that I was used to. And he, he wouldn't have carried anything. He would have just walked off and done this beaver study with nothing. So uh, it was a few days. There's a sub story. I won't trouble you with the details, but we could catch beaver. So we, we caught a beaver after three days. Before that, we were pretty hungry. But we caught a beaver. And cooked it in the fire and ate a nice thigh and threw the bone in the fire, uh, which was my habit because I like to keep a clean camp, you know, burn up the bones of the non-track bears. Well, Henry leap, leaped up, grabbed the bone out of the fire and, and threw it in the river and looked at me like I was crazy. And he says, well, why, why did you do that? And then he realized he was talking with a, you know, a southerner who didn't know the way the world worked. And then he calmed down and he explained to me, no, 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 the beaver spirit is important here. The bones go back. Sorry. The bones go into the river. 
he figured he'd save my life because if I had insulted the, the beaver spirit so badly, something horrible would happen. And he said that. Anyway, that's just an old story. It reminded me of what you said, you know, salmon bones into the rivers, beaver bones. Good for the beaver spirit to be back in the river, not all separated and burned up. Yeah. Anyway, I sort of got off the track. But the idea of uh, how, to, how to shoot wolves from, uh, how to reduce the wolf population. Well, nobody likes the idea of shooting wolves from from aircraft, helicopters, or, or you can do it from fixed wing too. But you have to land on skis and chase them into a lake. Uh, uh, I, I don't think, considering all the ways you can kill wolves, I don't. I don't think that's the worst in terms of just being humane as a wolf killer. If you want to be humane, that's as good a way as any. If your idea is to get rid of the wolves, uh, I don't like it. Recently, there's been some talk among the caribou recovery people of having First Nation people uh, get rid of the wolves, trap, hunt, whatever. Uh, uh, but do it on the ground. Uh, it's a more natural way to do it. Anyway, the way it's, the idea was presented, it's more natural. It's more humane. It's it's in, if the First Nation people do it, then it's uh, in keeping with their traditions. And they're besides they're managing the they they're managing they should be managing the uh, the land themselves anyway. And as I said before, I, I think that's the that would be the salvation is having First Nations. You know, Take over the management, especially these uh, uh, these critically endangered species. So, but I, whether it's more humane, I mean, I, I've seen wolves trapped in snares. I've seen wolves, uh, you know, leg hold traps. So it's not a humane way to do it. But I think if you have to kill wolves, uh, doing it from a helicopter is a good way as any in terms of being humane. It's it's not cheap, but if you have a lot of money to spend and you have a lot of money to spend because your logging industry is paying good taxes. Your heli skiing industry is paying good taxes. The provincial conference. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little, it's a little cynical here. Uh, anyway, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that uh, shooting wolves from caribou is the worst way to shoot wolves or, or to kill wolves. I just think that there's something dark about the people who have to do that. And the disconnect that you have, just like when we see, I don't know if you heard about in Chilliwack, we had uh, like the chicken event where uh, all these chickens in this one coop and the people working there, they started abusing these chickens. They started throwing the chickens. They started being abusive. I I think that what you do when you're just, whoever's having to sit there and just shoot uh, an animal as majestic, as well-respected as a wolf. Um, I think that that does something negative to how you identify yourself. I don't know how you, like, the the reason, I believe personally that the reason that you have these respectful ways of of treating animals in First Nations culture is not only their, their religious beliefs, perhaps, but because it's a way of process. Like, you see these... Um, vegetarians and these vegans saying i won't eat anything if it's if it's had to be killed because i don't deserve to i think that that that's them trying to cope with something that indigenous people figured out a way to cope with is how do i kill this animal this life 
um, and live with that and take on the responsibility afterwards to walk away and go, I need to be a better person now because I had to murder this beaver. I had to mur murder this life. And so now I have a responsibility. I don't think you get that when you're just gunning something from a helicopter. And I think that that messes, I, I predict that would mess psychologically with whoever's having to do that because now you just don't value anything and it's fine to just fly overhead and kill um, innocent animals that don't understand what's going on. And then for those animals, you're not showing them the respect as we described with the beaver or the salmon of utilizing their body and appreciating their role in the ecosystem. And I think that that's all really, really bad. It might not be bad in terms of like, um, like perhaps it's better in cost, but it's worse on our, our civility. I think that's right. I, again, I think you've, you've uh, taken complex issues, emotional ones, and boiled them down into a nutshell. Uh, reminds me a bit of like when I was first doing those fur bear studies up north in 1970. They dropped us off uh, fixed wing aircraft on skis on a lake, and we, we put up our tent 45 below, and we did our we started studying fur bears. And we had the plane coming every couple of weeks with groceries and mail. And uh, one week, and uh, our pilot landed and gave us the grocery and the mail. Said, oh, I, I killed a wolf on the way here. He was real proud of himself. He'd seen these wolves and used his aircraft to like chase him into the middle of the lake, and then landed on the lake, got out his rifle, and shot this wolf. And he was real proud. Well, my boss, who's that was 1972, still my good friend. I talked to him all the time. He really upbraided the pilot who had done this. Told him. You'll never fly with us again if I ever hear of you shooting wolves on on a, on our contract, our you know logistics contract, our flying contract. He says we don't do that, and we're not going to hire anybody who does. So this is, I mean, we're all well. Our our colleague was there, so listening to him, he's a guy, not not the, not Henry that I've mentioned before, but basically the pilot and us two biologists, you know, we're from, we're Southerners, we're not from that country. But two of us had had the, the ethos of, of not not shooting wolves, just sort of just to shoot a wolf. And the pilot didn't have that ethos. He thought it was fine to chase a wolf onto a lake and shoot it. But after that incident, when we upbraided him, my, my boss did, my friend, he never did it again. His company, his flying company, his, you know, Bush Bush pilots, they never did. They adopted. It. So I think these ideas, they can spread. And I think, as we mentioned before, all, all the work of the environmental groups, it, it does spread. I mean, it does, you have these many small successes. You don't get necessarily always get the big success that you really want, but the small successes don't, I mean, it's more than nothing. It's, it's good, whether you're talking climate change, biodiversity, you know, new, new national parks and protected areas. Back in the 60s, the, uh, the the fight to get rid of these chlorinated uh, pesticides that were building up in birds' eggs and causing the eagles and pelicans to decline. We've had a lot of successes, and we still can have some. Uh, but to save the caribou, uh, we're not going to, at least not unless they, yeah. they change their tune. Particularly, I just think of, like, we know that all dogs... Uh, I would say, like, I'm more of a dog person, but I would say that all dogs come from wolves, and we know that pretty clearly. 
and we co-evolved with them over time and so <coughs> just to think about just to think about the the impact that we're having on a species that we've had such a long strong relationship with um and to do it in this way it just seems it seems really it seems really dark to think of when you look at your your dog it came from a wolf like its lineage goes all the way back to those animals and we have this long standing beautiful relationship i watched a netflix series uh, called explained and they do one on dogs specifically and they say that over time wolves realized that they could work with humans and so their emotional states became intertwined with ours so that they could regulate our emotions which is why they work so well as uh um support animals um as police dogs that they've really grown to understand how to connect with a person and i th i think that's beautiful and i think of those wolves were the first and we're so lucky to have had that evolution with them and to do what we're doing um like I'm not against conservation. I'm not against the idea that perhaps we do need to bring down wolf populations for a, ver a variety of reasons. I'm okay if the science says that needs to be done, but I think that we need to honor these animals in a in a better way than we are for not only them but for ourselves, for our own. Because reading that that made me feel terrible about humans. Because then it's just like another one of those moments of like when you hear about a bear accidentally wandered around like a community too long, so they killed it. It's like that doesn't make me feel good. That doesn't make me feel like we're good stewards of the environment. And reading that we're killing them from helicopters just again makes me go, like, how can we say we care so much? And how can that be the headline when we're doing and behaving this way? Because perhaps it needs to be done, but there has to be a better, more friendly way of going about that to take off the responsibility. Because Again, we might have a role to play in controlling the amount of predators and, and prey. Um, but if we don't take on that responsibility 100%, you end up in a helicopter shooting animals from the sky and saying that you're you're being a good conservationist. And there's no part of, I think, most people that feels like that's that's the way conservation should be, that that's the gold standard of where we should take this. It's statements like that that make me think there's hope. And like I said, I shooting wolves from helicopters. It, it, it seems wrong. It's for me. It's just disgusting. It's unconscionable. And yet, irrationally, if you have to shoot wolves, it's probably as good. Or if you have to kill wolves, it's probably as good a way as any to do it. Uh, I'd I'd rather they you know, going back to my conversation with the pilot in 1972, who killed a wolf, you know, on, on our charter. You know. I think it's wrong and it shouldn't be done. There should be another way to solve the problem. And, and with wolves and caribou, there is another way to solve the problem, and that is protect the habitat and get the uh, get rid of the snowmobiles that are in their critical winter habitat. And if you would do that first, and then if you had to kill kill a few wolves to you know to increase recruitment among the the caribou populations, then well, then find a, a good way to do it. Yeah, I, I think though this whole idea is wrong. And again, I'm, I'm reiterate: I'm not against wolves kill, killing wolves per se. I'm against killing wolves uh, and not solving the other problems that are uh, bringing down the caribou populations. Absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Where did you go to school, and how did you um, kind of become a biologist? Oh yeah. Well, I mentioned at the start that. 
I was born and raised in California, and I went to school in a little mountain town in northeastern California, and there was lots of wildlife. My buddies and I hunted, you know, we hunted during hunting season and fished all the rest of the year and got our, you know, went skiing and did winter sport. You know, we're always outside, but wildlife was important to us, and we always hunted and fished. So when I I went to college, I... I stumbled a bit, took a while to find my direction, but then I got I got into the wildlife program and got a degree in wildlife management, and so still in California. But then, learning about wildlife management from a professional wildlife management point of view, I started realizing that their uh, uh, <laughs> wildlife habitat is pretty well used up in large parts of California. There just wasn't much left. There's still, you know, relic populations here and there, you know, bighorn sheep and elk. But they're just uh, few and far between compared to, a, you know, a century past. And uh, as I neared graduation, uh, I started remembering when, when I was seven, my family took a whole summer and we went driving all around the western states and up, up through Alberta and British Columbia and I started thinking as I was in college nearing graduation that, you know, Canada is a pretty nice place. There's places there where still there's lots of wildlife. Habitat isn't all ruined and used up. And then there was also the Vietnam War was going on. I thought it was wrong. You know, geopolitically, it was wrong. It was morally, it was wrong. I didn't want to go and fight the war. And so I had another reason to go to Canada. So I came to Canada as a draft dodger, but also because I, I wanted to start a career in wildlife, you know, something, wildlife management, wildlife biology, wildlife research. At the time, was it tough to come to Canada, uh, being accused of being a draft dodger? Was that something that was, because I'm sure like now looking back on it, of course, things did not play out the way I think the United States expected it to. But during that time, was that a tough decision at all? It was a tough decision. Uh, not, not because uh, I never got any bad vibes within Canada for my decision to avoid the draft and come to Canada. I did have some bad vibes among my family. We tend to be conservative and colleagues and university and so so on. But, you know, you make your decision and you you follow your path. And I I never had any regrets and never, like I say, being in Canada, I never had any problems from that point of view in Canada. I had a good career. you know, I worked for a series of consultant companies and then went to work for the government and became a Canadian citizen. And, uh, I just, we don't, like, we don't have anything like the draft today and I've never grown up with the draft existing. Um, and in Canada, it's been used very, very rarely. Um, I think only at heights in World War One and Two, And so I'm just, that's why I'm interested is like, I can't imagine that, that pressure uh, from your family to do something like that. Like, we don't have anything like that today where we would feel pressure to do something like that and to have to make a moral decision for yourself in that regard where the, the stakes are so high to go to another country and fight or to have to figure out how you're going to handle this. It's like we don't have anything comparable today. No, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, it's not much I can say about that. I, I among my high school buddies, you know, we're all on the track team, football team, good, good, close friends, hunted and fished together. And we made different decisions. Some got drafted and went to the war. Some took officer training and, you know, 
know, jet or whatever. And uh, some took alternative service, went to Alaska and worked in a hospital or whatever, and I went to Canada. Uh, interesting, I had a little get together with my, this is sort of off the topic of woes and everything. But no I, worries. A few years, well, 10 years ago, I had a little mini reunion with those guys, my high school buddies, who, who uh, some had fought in war, been in war, and, uh, the ones that came back. And also the guys that went to Alaska and myself, we all got together. And even from those guys, even from those guys who, who fought in that horrible war, I didn't get any bad vibes from them for having gone to Canada. That's good. Not at all. Yeah, it's so tough to think about looking back in hindsight because now that it played out so differently than people would have expected. Um, because there's a part of patriotism, there's a sense of community, there's a sense of responsibility, and there's got to be so much pulling from you from all sides. And so it's good that you were, like, it sounds like you got some closure from that to be able to to know and to put that decision uh, to rest. I've had a really blessed career, to be honest. I've had, like, my whole life has been like a series of dreams come true. I told you I had, ever since I came to Canada first, you know, when I was seven years old, I, I thought the idea of building a cabin in the wilderness was something I wanted to do, and I did it. I went to work as a wildlife biologist and, you know, all around the Arctic and the north, and I did that. It was a dream come true. And seeing the, uh, seeing the undisturbed northern wildlife, you know, was a wildlife biologist's dream. I have to say, working with First Nations people was also a real treat. Uh, they were more or less undamned. Un I don't know that's the right way to say it, but the people up in all of them down to McKenzie were, were following their traditional way of life. And it was a big time of change for them because the, the Bridger Inquiry was coming up and there were big changes. You know, McKenzie Valley Pipeline was going to bring big changes to all the communities. And we worked with those guys, you know, every time we started, say, my buddy and I, I told you about it, it was my boss, but now my friend, both biologists, same age. Our modus operandi, we'd go into a, a village where we wanted to do a study, meet the chief, explain the study, ask to be introduced to the trapper who trapped in the area where we wanted to do our study. Of course, we were studying fur bears, he and I were, others, others in the team were studying you know, caribou or whatever. We were studying fur bears, Martin, Nick, uh, Banks, Beavers, Musgrave. So then we'd meet the guy who, who trapped in that area, and usually we'd make some accommodation for him. He'd help us move our gear. He'd bring his dog team or whatever, his boat, move our stuff. He'd live with us. So I got to live and work with those guys, and that was a real treat, just seeing how they lived, you know, in the old days, seeing their, their technology, you know, how they – how they manage their dogs, how they manage their their toboggans, you know, how they, you know, how, how they eat while they're on the trail. You know, they, they make you know, bannock, they, they dry fish, they bring along the dry fish, they bring along the dry meat, they they you know collect things while they're out. Uh, that was a real treat. Another real treat that was related was, you know, the Berger Inquiry was going on. Our studies relate were related to the Berger Inquiry, this Northern Pipeline. Thing we were doing the environmental impact. So 
we met a lot of old guys and a lot of young guys. The chiefs were all old. They were like the sage elders of the communities. But during the time, the few years, four or five years that I did that work, in virtually every community, there was a turnover in the chiefs. And who the old guys, uh, and they had to go and make submissions to the British Inquiry. They had to like give the, you know, the, the benefit of their, their knowledge and wisdom to the British Inquiry about it's their land and it's their wildlife and how to protect it, what their concerns were. Well, they, there was a turnover, you know, who initiated, I don't know, but it was the same like every single village that we worked at. A young guy who had some education would become chief. Not young, not as young as you, of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, guys in their 30s and 40s were becoming chiefs. Uh, and that was because the communities were realizing that you needed, an, you know, an English-speaking guy who understood the white culture, the Southern culture, the 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 problems as well as the 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 bad as well as the good, and could go to the inquiry. Well, they also had these community meetings, not just in Yellowknife, but the other communities. So, uh, so there was a turnover in in the people. You know the elected chiefs. An outcome of that process. Well, this was you know mid seventies. An outcome of that was the land claims. When having gone to the Yellowknife or attended the community hearing with Berger and all the lawyers and all the Southerners and all you know all all the big money people and all the engineering companies and the pipeline companies and oil and gas companies, and seeing what's what's at risk in their country, a lot of them started saying, well, you know, really, and, and there were international things too. There was, well, I don't have to tell you about the international thing, but there were, there was a, a, a global ideas that people who are from an area and who can trace their lineage back to time immemorial should have a say in how the area is managed and maybe should do the management themselves. So in Mackenzie and also in Nunavut, Inuit country, uh, they put forward these, and also in Yukon where I also work, uh, they put forward these, call them land claims at first, but uh, land claims, co-management treaties, uh, they basically took over management. So that uh, now when you, you go to the, well, I went back to Resolute Bay, Years ago, on a government contract, and looked up some old people. Uh, when I first started, there would have been a. Uh, sorry for I don't, I don't mean to be uh, using characterizations that are unfair, but there would be a white guy who would be the the, the game manager, and he, he's who who we would meet with. I told you we also met if we were going to study, we would meet the chief and etc. The trappers, but. There were big a, a white guy who was who was in charge of managing. Well, now no. You go to when I went to Resolute Bay, I didn't. Uh, was there even a white guy even involved in that? There was who you met with was the Hunters and Trappers Association. They were the these were the Inuit people who were out on the land. They they hunted and they they, they trapped. They they brought you know they brought in the muskox and the caribou and the and the fish and. Uh, they brought first to sell, and uh, 
they were in charge of the communities, but they were also they were the responsible people in their communities. But they were also the elected officials, uh, if, if it was a chief, and, and they were also the Hunters and Trappers Association. And, and then there's a, a, a Nunavut-wide sort of land management council with different subgroups. There's like the wildlife. These are like for the whole of Nunavut. So these hunters and trappers associations composed of the guys who were on the land and had been on the land, you know, on their, since their ancestors' time, they're the ones making decisions now. And I think it's wonderful. I mean, I saw it evolve from being totally directed from outside forces to being uh, at least largely directed from within. Uh, getting back to caribou, I think this idea of the Soto and these other people's up around Chetwin. I think that's that's the, the the way to do it. Problem is in the uh, Arrow Lakes. The Arrow Lakes people are, were declared extinct a few you know, decades ago by the federal government. So there's nobody. There's no like First Nations institution or organization within that particular valley. There is further east, the Katanaha people. Right. It sounds like what you're also saying, though, is that this is uh, a problem that's better addressed, perhaps at like a uh, like First Nations communities are. I I usually compare them to like a municipality. Um, that it's better done by a lower level of government where the people actually live there. They actually care. It's tough when your decisions about your community, um, your cabin. It sounds like are being dictated by people who live in Victoria who don't see caribou every day, who don't care because it's not in their backyard and so it seems like this is like a, an authority ideally that would be moved to like the municipal level because the community members who live in that community actually go for walks and actually get to see the wildlife in their area and instead of having a provincial government of somebody who lives in a high rise in vancouver making the decisions about the wildlife that exists hundreds of kilometers from them that they're never going to go see, that they're never going to take off their suit and start exploring the wilderness. These people aren't the best people to be making the decision. So perhaps moving it to the municipal level would have some impact because then it's your your city council and then you can elect them to start to make decisions about the ecosystems that exist in your area rather than all the way in Victoria or in Ottawa where these people have no real relationship or understanding of what's taking place. Why do these animals matter? What is it like to see this animal? Because for me, I've never seen a wolf in person. I've never seen a caribou in person. And so it's it's all theoretical until I'm out there looking at the the animal and going, wow, this is it's in its natural environment. This is how it's living. Yeah, this is the idea of devolution from higher levels of government, giving their authority down to lower levels, you know. And it's a good idea. It can be overdone because some at some point, if you push it, push big responsibilities down too low, then you get people who don't see the big picture, don't have big enough responsibilities. But so there's always a, a balance and a trade-off between what exactly you know. I'm talking about governance issues, but I don't really know anything about governance. It's just my what I've picked up over the years. But uh, I think it's it's right. Uh, but First Nations are a little bit. Um, more more complex than just devolution to a lower level of government, because they have this. Well, it's like a it's like a family. It's like my you know my my, my family. You know, we have our history and our, the places that are important to us. But 
the miners scatter all over the all over the northern hemisphere. Uh, the, the First Nations, uh, in many cases, by and large, are they 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 have an intimate connection with with well, with this land, this place. Like my friends up north, you know, my 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 uh, Henry the Kakisa guy who pulled me out of the freezing water. And then went on to become a counselor, uh, and his dad was chief, and he, you know, went to the Virgin Inquiry. Uh, this is important. Uh, I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have given his speech. I read his speech years later, and just out of curiosity. And he stood up in front of the inquiry, and thought he was erudite and, you know, thoughtful and fair and balanced, and he gave a nice detailed account of his and his community's interest in the land. I, I couldn't have done it. With, you know, even being a scientist and, you know, having collected all this information about, you know, about the physical environment, the biological environment, we don't have that sort of societal connection. I'll tell you another little sort, sort you know, I like telling stories. You can edit this out. No, this is, this is why we're here. This uh, is why I make them three hours. It's a little bit off the track, but I was uh, one of my career things is wildlife toxicology. <clears throat> After I quit the government, uh, and I, I uh, well, I worked until I could, uh, for various reasons, came together. I, I could take early retirement when I was fifty. This is twenty some years ago. So then I I, I quit the government, uh, took my early retirement package, paid off my mortgage. When, when consulted, but one of the things I could consult with good because I had a, uh, some history and, and some contacts was wildlife toxicology. So I I did some wildlife toxicological studies for various companies, mostly mining companies, not entirely, some oil and gas. So up in our, in my, my clients were mining companies at the start, but later some of my clients were actually First Nations uh, so I'd be on this side of the table, you know, with my, the mining engineers and vice presidents, and then sometimes I'd be meeting with the same people, but I'd be sitting on the other side with my First Nations client. Usually it was the other way around. Uh, but the, the thing is that the First Nations, these are like issues over mining licenses and operating permits. You know, how do you develop a new mine without damaging the things that are important in the environment. So the First Nations representatives, uh, they came, they're always uh, well-prepared, at least as well-prepared as I was, and I'm, you know, I'm a good biologist, I know, know my job, and, and these guys were in the same category. We were like peers in that sense. We were specialists in our respective things, and they, they didn't just limit their conversation, you know, where the good berry picking was. I don't, I don't sorry, I don't mean to be uh, unfair to characterizing in anybody, but they, they came armed with uh, technical things about, uh, you know, exfiltration and the, and the ions and the, the, the data from the wells. And, you know, they, they could trace the, the flow, you know, conceptually as well as on, you know, maps and diagrams and figures. Of contaminants through the environment, various kinds of subsurface ground and whatever. Uh, and I found myself thinking, if these guys 
And if these First Nations guys, these Aboriginal people, if they were just given the responsibility, the whole responsibility, or if they wrest it from whoever has it, either way, whether it's given or taken, but if they had the responsibility of managing their environment, we could do a lot worse. We're actually doing worse than now than if we if they would take over. And uh, how to make it happen, I don't know. But, you know, the Silkatine people, you know, they had that big treaty. They, they got rights entitled to a big, big area. You know, and, uh, you know all, all, all. There was a, a hue and cry in the newspapers where the economic interests were at risk uh, because they couldn't foresee how the Silkatine people were going to manage their exercise their newfound rights and title uh, without damaging somebody else's former rights. But that's not how it works. They're, it's, it's good for the environment. It's good for the wolves. It's good for the caribou to have people who live there, who have always lived there, take over the management. I mean, I saw that in the Arctic, you know, with the hunters and trappers committees now, you know, making the decisions on hunting and trapping. Uh, I think it's uh, there. Therein lies, if not all the solution, at least a big part of the solution. Yeah, that is what I read in the the Marshall decision, which was about um, it was a, a more Ontario side decision. But the idea that the Supreme Court came to was like, well, you can have your rights, but we need to maintain conservation. And it's like, oh, well, you don't really understand First Nations people then, because. That's like our primary objective. And it seems like from what you're saying that we take that as seriously, if not more seriously than the claims that governments make to the idea of conservation, that um, because it's been here for so long, we actually are committed to it where when you're in a board meeting in a building and you're all discussing how we're going to save the caribou, that it's all a little artificial. You're not there. You don't understand those animals. You don't understand the relationship you've had for years. You don't have stories about them that make you value them more and that give you that deeper connection. And I think it's perhaps one of the limitations that like, because I see the stories of indigenous people and the Bible is somewhat comparable to the morality that they teach you. Um, First Nations people, we use them for ge geographic locations. So I had, as I said, Sonny McKelsey on, and he was describing what Mount Chiam means, uh, uh, wild strawberries at the top. And so that's what, that. yeah, that's what the, and then there is still that strawberry patch at the top. And so we have these stories that give us a relationship with the land. So if you were coming here from, Yukon or from different areas, you'd be able to figure out where you are based on these stories. And that gives you a deeper relationship. And I think it's comparable to the idea of Noah and the Ark, where you have this story of this one individual, the flood comes, and he saves the animals. He takes responsibility for the environment by trying to save them. Whether that literally happened or not, I think is, we don't have to get lost in that because we understand that the responsibility of people is to protect the wildlife. And when you're, again, in a high rise in a building and you're looking at graphs and figures, it's so artificial in comparison to somebody who's, who's been out there, who's looked at these animals and had that deeper respect. One of my last responsibilities before I left the government, I was working for the Wildlife Service and they put me in charge of negotiating uh, the First Nations treaty rights and 
developing co-management agreements for wildlife management, just, just the wildlife part, not, not the whole environment part. But I was responsible for working on individual uh, you know, treaties and land claims. And also, on, I, I went to Ottawa and I worked with the, the policy people on developing policies to do this. And what, what was permissible in a co-management agreement for wildlife management with, you know, with a hypothetical First Nation? Uh, and so there were federal policies that were written in stone, were given to us to start with. But the woman I worked with in Ottawa, who was in charge of the, the section, it was like I was just doing the regional thing, right? I worked on half a dozen or more, a dozen or so of the ta- so-called tables, consultants. And she was a First Nation herself. She was part Cree and part Chiefland, I forget. Uh, but she was a First Nation woman, a lawyer, and a biologist. She had three really good credentials to, to be head of that section. And she and I were closely together. We sort of sat there, we, you know, over many months, worked out, here's the sort of the policy statement, here's what it would mean in practice, and, you know, putting down and this this point that you've mentioned several times today about uh, the rights to manage except up to the point where conservation becomes a concern. We got stuck on this. And I I kept saying, well, I mean, you know, I'm steeped in government, you know, I, you know, I, university, you know, Southern University in government. Uh, I have a respect for authority and the laws are such and such, you know, and the organizational structure is such and such. And I was, and we got into a real a tough argument about this. Uh, when should the conservation clause kick in? Is it even necessary? You know, like a co-management agreement or land claim or a treaty. <clears throat> and she was having a hard time making me understand that the First Nations who would be negotiating these treaties, land claims agreements, uh, they have all they need in their own community to take on the issue of when should conservation clauses kick in? When does when do caribou become so scarce we have to kill wolves? Or if we have to kill wolves, you know, how, how do we do it? Or whatever. Uh, and I, I was saying, you know, it's, it's got to be in writing. Say, you know, for example, I put forward the idea, well, how about up until it becomes officially declared as threatened, then the native right and title would have to be abrogated in terms of conserving whatever species we're talking about. And she would say, why would you think that? No. She said, the people who manage and who, you know, from there, who have elders who remember the old days. They they know. And one thing she said to me when we were having a particularly tough conversation, she said, Lee, if I can't make you understand, me, meaning, you know, I've worked with First Nations people. I've told you about some of my history. I have had friends all up and down, Mackenzie, you know, trappers and their families, 
of these I had have had these deep relationships and experience that I trade her. And she said, Leah, if I can't make you understand, how can I, how am I gonna make the average bureaucrat or politician understand? And she was right. I was stuck. I was stuck in my own history. Sorry, no. I think it's incredibly brave to be able to to see that and to to understand our relationship and and to be able to change your perspective because that's often where people get stuck, right? Is and you've you've shown that throughout this conversation is that you're not committed to one side. You're you're evolving with the science. You're willing to admit that overall the study may come to the same conclusion, but there were these few errors that needed to be acknowledged and addressed. Um, that balanced perspective is is why I thought it was important to have someone like yourself on because uh, I did see that your article was referenced by an extremely one-sided perspective, but I saw through your work and through our conversations that you had a very balanced perspective and you just want what's best for the environment, for the people who get to experience these lands. It's why you chose to move where you live today and, and have that cabin. And, and for you to be able to own that, I think sets an example for so many other people. It's, it's why I like talking to leaders and role models like yourself is because if we can't admit where we're wrong, there's nowhere else to go. There's no more progress that can be made because we get stuck. And that ability to share that story, I think, is so valuable. Well, she was right. And they still haven't solved all these problems either. Yeah. <laughs> I left and I probably wasn't the worst they could have had in that position either. Yeah. Yeah, I think of uh, decisions and like how uh, interviewing various people and like these stories seem to have such a, a strong impact on people. But I do think that the best hands are individuals like yourselves are able to review the information and try and make good decisions, whether it's in a community, whether it's biology. And that ownership, I think, is so... I interviewed Karen Bondar, and I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's a science communicator. She's been on Netflix, National Geographic, various platforms to talk about science communication. And she's been pushing the idea of making our relationship with First Nations community stronger because they see these relationships and they value them and they have stories about the caribou or they have a deeper relationship with these animals that gives us a greater appreciation and i think that that's what strong environmentalists are working towards they want that connection again as i said vegans vegetarians people who've made those decisions i think they're craving they really want that relationship and it's something that you don't hear about ever when you go for dinner, there's no grace anymore. And whether or not you're religious or not, you should appreciate what you're eating. Uh, because the other part I wanted to ask you about, for me, I've never seen a grizzly bear. I've never gotten to see otters in their natural environment or beavers doing their own thing. I, we saw a beaver once at a pond, but it's, it's again, it's artificial. It's not them working like they had like rules around making sure that the beavers couldn't build dams. And like when I saw this beaver, I was like, this is so artificial in that it doesn't get to be a beaver. Beavers mm -hmm. like to build dams. You can't build dams here. So it's really just kind of swimming around kind of stuck. And so I'm interested to know what the experience, some of your experiences of being able to be in nature, in wildlife, not 
on the main trail. Like when we go for walks, we're on a trail. It's pa- it's basically paved. It's not the same as what you've experienced where you chose to live um, and have a cabin in the woods. That relationship, it seems like there's there's it's falling away. There's less and less people who have that relationship with with the wilderness and with being able to be comfortable saying like, okay, I have to go hunt for my food now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that's lacking, and I'm just. I think hunters set such a good example in terms of their willingness to be uh, conservationists to like a lot of in the United States. I know a lot of their the money that they pay for tags and stuff goes back into conservation. And many people don't realize that they get freaked out with the word hunting and they go, you kill an animal. But I think that make, gives you that deeper relationship. Canada, with Canada, too, a big part of our hunting licenses goes to habitat conservation. Yeah, and so you have this deeper relationship with your food that you lose when you're at a Walmart and you're picking up 25 chicken breasts for $12. You have no relationship with that animal. You have no understanding of its life and what it went through. Whereas when you shoot something or when you have to kill something, you have a, a strong relationship. So what have that those experiences been like to be out in the wilderness? Well, uh, I mean, I just trade her. I told you before, my whole life has been a series of dreams come true. Being able to go up in the Arctic and, you know, see a, a live polar bear and see, you know, 65,000 caribou all in one, all in one herd, you know, c- catching these big fish, you know, pass the lure, catch a fish, and, you know, and, uh, you know, seeing all the different kinds of environments, you know, the Alpine country in the north, northern BC where the, where the caribou live and the, the Arctic tundra where the different kind of caribou live and the grizzly bears. And, uh, I've treasured that. I've often thought, I mean, I know a lot of people don't have those experiences, never seen a wild polar bear or a grizzly. Even. And here we live in grizzly country. Uh, I, I don't know what the solution is, except that the more people who have these experiences get closer to nature, I think the better off we'll all be. Uh, e- even if they just take, you know, elementary school class out and, Look at butterflies. They should at least do that. If if that's all they can do, then they should do that and try to instill. And you know, a lot of our uh, new people coming from foreign shores who have haven't got even as much sort of uh, sort of historical empathy with the natural environment as as we do. Uh, they they need to be introduced to the natural environment. You know, I think the more people who get out and get a chance to see even even a deer, never mind a caribou or a grizzly bear, the better off we'll be. I I mentored a, a Syrian family. This is totally off the topic, but you know, I do my civic duty and the Syrian people were coming over. Uh, they were looking for volunteers. I volunteered to be a mentor for a new Syrian family that, you know, from a war zone didn't speak any English. How long ago was this? Two or three years. I, I mentored them for two or three years until I, I saw they, they got on their feet. Uh, young woman, three kids, uh, husband killed in the war. A horrible story. I just started showing her the natural environment around. I mean, they, they live in, in Coquitlam, but what, one of the things I thought, well, I can do for them, well, I'll show them so I took them and saw a waterfall. They'd never seen a waterfall. But there's not enough water anywhere in Syria that it could like fall over a rock or, you know, come out of a mountain. Yeah. They they I took them to see the salmon spot and, you know, a couple on the river and you know, big salmon and 
water flowing down and uh, even, you know, walks around the town here, you know, different places. I took them to a different place every week like for three years, different natural place to introduce them to, to Canada. This is, this is Canada. Yeah, we have mountains. Well, the first day when I, I took them out, I, I drove them. They had a medical appointment and went to Brandy. And coming back, I said, you mind if we take the, the inlet in a different, different way? And Okay. Well, we stopped along at the Farther Green Park, and they're looking at these huge cottonwood trees. They'd never, that was just when they just, like, just arrived. They'd never seen anything like that. Well, if more people like that could be, you know, introduced to what's natural, I think the better off we'll be. And, and I think it starts early. It starts early, and, and you need to, you know, Get your your toe on the accelerator and, and keep it there. Take all the classes out as often as you can, winter and summer, rain and shine. Let them go out and show them a deer. If all you can find is a deer, then show them a deer. Yeah, I think about, uh, I don't know if you heard in the news recently, they decided to uh, allow um, doctors to prescribe going to national parks. Oh, yeah. And they get they get cards now, and they can get that prescribed. And I thought, what a good idea! And I, I of course support it. But then it was kind of like the other part of me was like, where are we? Where we need that prescribed to us? Like, I, like I think of uh, my grandmother, um, my like everybody I know who's older than me has been like, we used to go out into the forest, and we just used to get lost for a while and just explore and enjoy ourselves. And so, like, where have we gotten to where we need that prescribed to us? in order for us to go and do that, in order to think we should be out in nature. Because uh, I interviewed, I don't know if you know him, Brian Minter. Uh, he ran yeah, Minter, Minter Country Gardens. I mean, I met him. Yes. And so he talked about how um, an hour in like real forest actually boosts your immune system. And it's like there's scientific reasons, there's health reasons, there's so many reasons to return to these environments. It humbles you, I think, when you interact with certain animals, you kind of remember, oh, I'm just a part of this. Um, I also interviewed Elder Eddie Gardner, and he he has like a deep respect. And my favorite part was when he described trees. He didn't call them trees. He said the rooted ones. And when he described bugs, he called them the ones that crawl. Um, because he doesn't, like, I think of bugs and I go, get that mosquito, get that bug off me. But he didn't look at them that way because they're all a part and we, they all have a role to play in our environment. And then uh, you think of like, I, I hear a lot of friends go like, oh, there's a spider. And then there's always somebody who will go like, uh, yeah, but we need the spiders. And then it's like, there's a bee. And then people are like, you need the bees. And it's like, we need all of it. Like we, have we have this deep relationship with everything around us and when you start to learn about that to me i don't know it makes you full when you we uh we've been learning more about mushrooms and how they help trees grow and how they help um the deformed wing virus and bees and like you learn about these complex relationships that i don't it humbles me and it makes me grateful that like it makes me respect i guess the wilderness more and understand that we're just a small part of this well, you know, the earth has been here a long time. It's been evolving all of, you know, the bees and the spiders and everything since long before we were here. And we've been here relatively recently. But we're, we're you know, we're, we are a part of the environment. We spring from the environment. And the more people who, who can keep that uh, perspective, that, that feeling of being part of the environment, I think the better off we'll be.
Absolutely. Can you tell us just a little bit about your family life? Um, when did you meet your wife and how did that kind of come about with your work in biology? Was she originally from Canada as well or how did that come about? Uh, she hired me. <laughs> A nice Jewish girl from Winnipeg. And I was working, I worked up north and a company in Edmonton. And I changed to a, a different company, still working up north, but the company was in Vancouver. She's the one that hired me to, she was in charge of, of hiring she, for that consult, environmental consulting company. And, uh, uh, well, you know, one thing leads to another. So she, she's my wife and we, are, we have our, our, our uh, our, our two kids and the three grandkids. And, you know, the grandkids live in Revelstoke, and they've never seen a caribou. My son has seen a caribou, as I told you before. Uh, and my daughter, you know, 40, she's on, doesn't have any kids, no permanent boyfriend. Uh, she's a, a really good mountain girl, though. She just loves to go out in the mountains, and she she'll say, Dad, let's let's get the canoe and go for a long canoe ride and she and I'll take the canoe out or she uh, uh, she takes her her friends camping fishing and canoeing and hiking she's a good hiker and so she's close to she's not a biologist you know and I think my son is more lives up in Rebels like he's a chef and he's uh, more of a Close to the land in terms of like picking mushrooms, and uh, he's more. She, she's more of a. She she visits more, more of a visitor. She she's good though. She's a good mountain girl. She spends a lot of time in the in the trails and pathways. Okay. And he's the one that he you know he cuts firewood for, to heat his house and picks mushrooms. And grows grows a lot of vegetables and plants and stuff. That's amazing. So, it's nice to have that kind of family you know, ties. Yeah. How did uh, you guys go about decide? Were you the one who said we got to get a cabin up uh, up north here, and she was on board, or uh, were were you both on the same page about where you wanted to? Oh, well, I already had my cabin by the time I met her. Okay. Uh, I built the cabin not long before, a couple of years, I guess. Hold on, you built it? Yeah. Like. You grab. You got the wood. You started building this place. Uh, yeah, I bought a, I bought sixty acres of land and a, and a home light chainsaw. Wow! And I cut the trees, peeled them, dragged them into place, cut the notches, and made a cabin. Well, my first cabin uh, now is owned by my niece. There's been some changes, but we have a little family enclave down there. My uh, my old property I sold to my sister and her husband who was one of these guys I mentioned that, you know, was on the track in high school, on the track team. One of my buddies from high school married my sister, long story, but they uh, they now own my old property, the 60 acres that I had. And I've got my little cabin. My son's got a cabin there, nice little timber frame house that he and I built together. Cut the trees. You know, made the notches and, Put up the timbers, and uh, and my so that's four little cabins. Oh, just pull it up. That's four, four little cabins. My my old cabin, Carol and Charles' cabin, and my sister, my cabin, my new one. Then I bought another property nearby. So and then my son. So we have a little family enclave, and it's nice to get together, and share this love of the nature and 
environment and have some history with the place. Absolutely. And it sounds like you guys have, you've kind of built that into your family unit that you value the environment and uh, that you've encouraged that because so many people live in cities now that Revelstoke and those areas are much more peaceful. There's much more opportunities to to reconnect with nature. Yeah. yeah. I was lucky in that my family back in California, well, uh, it, it sort of starts with the bad luck. Uh, my grandfather was settled in Bakersfield and you know, started raising a family. And the, the problem is that there was polio and some other diseases that seemed to always come in, in the summertime. So people who, who had the wherewithal to get out of town for the summer, they did. And so my granddad had you know, leased a you know, forest service lot in the Sequoia the forest giant sequoia forest and built it built a cabin and then my my dad his brothers you know rebuilt it and now my eventually passed to my my cousin and now to her to my my nephew same cabin but we we the whole family the, the extended family the clan and, and family friends spent all of our summers at that cabin my dad was a teacher so he had his summers free so we all just roamed around the you know the the woods. It wasn't wilderness exactly, but it was up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. It was it was pretty wild. You know, there were, you know, lots of deer, but there were also bears and cougars and ways to get hurt. There were rattlesnakes, and uh, we all shared that thing with with that particular cabin. And this is probably, I'm sure, that's the root of my plus my trip to, through, up through Alberta and, and BC that I told you about. You know, I, I had this idea that I wanted to build a cabin in the wilderness. There's some books I'd read. Heidi. You know the story about Heidi? No. <laughs> uh, Heidi. Uh, this story was set in the Alps somewhere. I don't know where. French or Swiss Alps. Uh, Heidi was a little mountain, uh, mountain girl. Uh, they had a well, I was, lived in a town in the in, in the mountains, and I don't even remember the story now. Look it up; you don't have to look it up. Okay. They had a in Europe in the mountains uh, throughout Norway and all the mountain parts of Europe. Because of the environment, they have a, a way up high in the mountains. They have a little cabin where they spend their summers with their livestock, their sheep, and cows, and then they they have a their main home in the, in the village or the farm down below. So I don't remember what the story was about Heidi, but there was a book, a children's book about Heidi, and she would go and spend her summers up in this alpine meadows with beautiful scenery, at least as illustrated in the book, and the wildflowers. This is one of the influences. I always had the idea of building a cabin amidst the wildflowers and trees and natural environment. And then having the cabin, the family cabin in California, natural for me to want to go to Canada and have a, a cabin, which then became sort of the nucleus of a family enclave. Yeah, that's brilliant. And that, it, yeah, but I, I was lucky. Not everybody has that. Yeah. And not everybody has the wherewithal to, to build a cabin. I mean, fortunately, we have national parks and provincial parks. And uh, sometimes I thought maybe I would have done better with without a cabin because I would have explored more widely and gotten to know the, the province. I'm, I know the province pretty well, but there are parts of the province I haven't been to. I'm, 
animal. It's, uh, you know, you wonder if it, if it could have done a different way and had it. I'm happy the way it turned out. I'm really happy with my experiences in my life. Yeah, and it's not over. So I'm sure if there's certain areas you want to check out, you can. Um, can you tell us what individuals listening can do uh, if they're interested in trying to address some of the things we've talked about here today? Um, is there like ways they can donate to something? Is there uh, wildlife conservation organizations that you think are high quality in comparison to perhaps some of the more extreme viewpoints? Um, what can people do if they care about the wolves, if they care about the caribou? Is there anything that people can do to try and address these things in their own lives? Yes. I'll have to think about this, but certainly donating to the groups like the Valhalla Society or Equal Justice, uh, who does good work in the, you know, in the legal area. You, you probably know them. Uh, making those donations is good. I think. Um, Bringing uh, yourself and your and your kids uh, up with a with a, a desire to have, to be to have good knowledge and extensive knowledge would be a good thing. If you can steer your kids into into science, at least have them take some science courses. I think there should science should be more valued. This whole, you know, climate denial business was anti-science, and since then we've seen a lot of other anti-science sort of streams of of vile. Uh, uh, I think science should be encouraged. Uh, writing should be encouraged. I think if people write about their experiences, then they'll value their own experiences more. I think people should be encouraged to write. Uh, uh, and to write properly. This <laughs> means good English, not what you might get on, I don't know, Twitter or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and then, like I said before, get get people, students especially, just out into the natural environment. Go for picnics. When I was little, everybody went for picnics all the time. Uh, it was just a thing that people, families did. They would get together a picnic basket and get an old jalopy or take a bus even and just go out in some wild place and, and have a picnic. No, nobody takes picnics. Uh, uh, picnics should be, it was a good idea. Go camping, you know, even if it's just a Golden Ears Park, which is just on our doorstep, you know. But there are a lot of places around here. Go camping. See the environment. Fishing. And I think the more time people spend in the natural environment, the better off the environment's going to be and the better off the people will be. You mentioned the trees. The Japanese have a word for it. Forest bathing is how it translates. Forest bathing. You go out into the forest and you bathe in the forest. You let the good you know, vibes or whatever soak into you from the forest. Forest bathing. There is so much to learn from these cultures and like they might not have known the exact science of the immune systems or anything like that, but they they knew enough and they they were aware of the benefits. And I think that that's that's so important. I really appreciate you being willing to to drive all the way out here today. Um, I really appreciated our, our online dialogues. Um, I think that individuals like yourself are so important because you didn't come down on one side or the other side. You respect the need for um, economies and for development, um, but you also think that they, they can be limited um, to make sure that we don't lose 
um, species to lose the biodiversity. And I think that it's so valuable that you were able to say this study could have been improved in these ways and it had errors. It was not perfectly done. If they did these changes, we could have gotten more reliable data on this. Um, I think that your critiques of the government are well-founded. Um, but again, you're not one side or the other. Um, your humility in regards to First Nations communities and, and their culture, I think is so valuable because I think that the more biology, the, the more the sciences can work together collaboratively with ancient understandings and knowledge and and community understanding. I think the stronger our our country and our communities can become. To me, that's what reconciliation looks like: is bringing the best of the two worldviews together um, and seeing what new we can make from that. And I think that that's the example you set by by sharing uh, your work. And I think that we're very lucky to have individuals like yourself who are willing to to look at the articles and to uh, critique them where critique is needed and to offer ways forward for others. And I really appreciate you being willing to share all of this with us today and your personal stories. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasurable conversation. Thanks for inviting me.